Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 76. We're all stories in the end. This week, we're discussing our favorite episodes, as well as the broader themes and character development of Series 5 of Doctor Who, plus Season 1, Episode 9 of Angel, Hero. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. And we're on to the Doctor Who Series 5 recap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, I think before we actually got into sort of the favorite episodes and, and season and all that, um, you wanted to talk about some of the awards and the reception and mm-hmm. give an idea there. So yeah, something. Let's, let's do that. Yeah, something we've done uh, for the other seasons, so I want to continue that. Um, let me just go through a couple of the uh, award nominees and winners here. Um, Matt Smith um, definitely was well-received in his first uh, season on the show. Um, he was mm-hmm. actually the first Doctor ever, so this is classic and new who, to be nominated for a main BAFTA award. Um, I think Tennant and maybe some of the others, I'm not sure, had been nominated for like regional BAFTA awards, like Wales or Scotland. Um, but Matt mm. Smith was the first one to get like what is the British equivalent of like an Emmy nomination. Um, sure. So he was nominated for that. Um, and he also had nominations for National TV and TV Quick Awards, and he won Scream and SFX Awards as well. Um, Karen Gillan also had a few uh, nominations herself for Scream and TV Quick, and she won the SFX Award. Um, and the show itself um, brought in some things as well. Um, was nominated for BAFTAs for visual effects, um, a Constellation Award, a technical accomplishment for um, uh, the composer, Mary Gold, um, mm-hmm. and National TV Award for Most Popular Drama, Saturn Award for TV Presentation, and Scream Award for Best TV Show. Um, and it won some things as well. The SFX Award for TV Show, TV Quick for Best Family Drama. Um, and actually, the writing staff was nominated for uh, a Best TV Drama Series by the Writers Guild of uh, Great Britain, which is kind of cool. Um, I think season three was the only other season uh, so far in, of New Who to get that nomination. Mm. Um, so that, that's a nice award, I think, because it, it doesn't just go to one particular writer. It kind of goes to whoever yeah. wrote an episode that year. Um, so uh, I also kind of wanted to mention kind of the overall popular reception, too, that um, we've talked a bit about how the show is changing with going, you know, becoming more popular in the UK and internationally and everything. Um, and, uh, the, from the reading that I've done, the ratings in the UK for season five did take a little bit of a dip, um, which anytime Doctor Who ratings go down by even a little bit, people freak out and think the show's going back into hiatus indefinitely. It's going to be canceled. You know, they're, they're ruining it. It's never coming back, all this stuff. Right, right. Because they're scarred by the 15-year gap, you know. Mm. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, part of that is just, you know, I'm sure maybe part of it did have to do with a change of regime. 
Um, more so, I yeah. think it's just the fact that, look, when you get into your fifth year, that's just what happens. Like, it can only keep getting increasingly more popular indefinitely, like for like so long, right? Like, mm -hmm. eventually it has to plateau a little bit. Um, the other thing which I think is kind of a big deal is um, while the overnight ratings of live viewing figures might take a slight dip, what that's not taking into account is all this new technology. So, you know, okay, yeah, maybe they got, you know, a million less, you know, overnight viewers, but there's also this explosion of, you know, DVR, downloads, streaming, you know, in Britain they have iPlayer and everything. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, those, with all this new technology, people just aren't watching TV the same way that they used to anymore. And so we have sure. to kind of re... Uh, calibrate how we judge ratings, basically. Um, yeah. And it also doesn't... Yeah, and and even... Sorry, I was just going to say, even at that, like, at, at realizing this isn't all that long ago, but it's mm -hmm. long enough ago. Like, I think even just in the U.S. here, like, yeah. Nielsen ratings only, like, within the last year started taking a lot of that into account. Yeah. So, yeah. like, you know, talking three, four years ago, that certainly yeah, th th this was is not the case. 2010, this is all pretty new. Um it also doesn't really take into account the boom internationally. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is really around the time, and it had been starting in the last year or two, but this is really when it broke out big in the States, you know, and I think other countries around the world as well. Um, now, you know, now it seems like Doctor Who is this totally mainstream, you know, you see it on all the websites, you know, as like, you know, one of the mainstream shows like IO9 and Entertainment Weekly and all that kind of stuff. It still yeah. isn't, you know, I don't know how many viewers BBC America gets. It can't be that many, really. But I think right. for that channel, it's huge. It's by far their most right. viewed program. So, you know, while, Which... while it may have dipped slightly in the UK as people got used to having it back, you know, and mm -hmm. you start to kind of, you know, get more comfortable with it. People aren't necessarily watching it live like they used to. When you add in the increased popularity overall, you know, between all this new technology and between the international market, it's mm -hmm. still going up. You know, it's still kind right. of, it's a net gain, I think. Um, so, you know, all of that, I think, kind of basically eased most people's fears about the new regime of the show and would Moffat and Smith be able to carry the torch and clearly they mm. did that you know and then some so yeah no and um you know that brings up a good point like you know this is another point of sort of comparison between Doctor Who and Buffy because mm -hmm. you're talking about um, the WB and that for Buffy, you know, later UPN yeah. where, you know, these are both fledgling networks where, yeah, they may never have gotten extraordinary numbers. If you're talking like, right. Like the big CSI three or numbers, Fox you know, or, or whatever, you know, like yeah. those kind of, and, and that's true. But yeah, for these, for these other smaller niche markets, like they're it's their flagship. Shows, right. Know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, assume this is the same for BBC America, but definitely for WB and UPN, they built like entire, you know, like schedules around. Oh these yeah. Shows and yeah. That kind of thing. BBC, so. BBC America now has this thing like supernatural Saturdays. Like that's like mm -hmm. a whole thing, which is totally structured around Dr. Who. Well, and, and, and 
coming up with their own original content like Orphan Black and things that tap into yeah. that market, yeah, yeah. you know, because they knew they had a golden property. And so they start yeah. buying and creating other things to sort of hit that sweet spot, you know. And, and we've probably got another season before we talk about it too much with Buffy, but um, like we definitely should keep that sort of thing in mind because, yeah. it, you know, you start getting shows like Charmed. Right, um, right. And, yeah. and that, you know, where they're where they're sort of building out these... Yeah, these knights that are sort of playing on these these more supernatural mm -hmm. uh, themes and that kind of thing that are kind of building off the success of Buffy. Yeah. Um, so very very cool, very interesting. Um, and yeah, I think important to think about like all the DVR stuff. I I may have mentioned I don't know if I mentioned some podcast or if I mentioned just to you sort of offhand, but I remember reading not too long ago sort of an economic analysis of sort of all those time shifting devices going all the way back to even like, like Betamax and the original, yeah, and the VCR you know, VCRs and, and that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and the effect that it had sort of on storytelling yeah. and, and the growth and, um, you know, it was in the early nineties where you get shows like the X-Files that yep. they start having these larger mythologies. And then in, into the late nineties where you have, you know, it's not quite mainstream yet, but it does set the stage for things like Buffy and uh, yeah. and Angel. And then you get, you know, um, shows like Lost and all that. And even right. the resurgence of Doctor Who, I would definitely include as part of that. Yeah. Um, they, even though DVRs were less popular at that point, they were still around. I mean, they were just starting out to, you know, where people were still kind of figuring out what you could do. Right. And how... Well, and 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 the DVD coming out too that you could buy and a, DVD you could yep. buy a box set you know afterwards An and watch it you know so yeah, yeah it totally yeah. changed the way people view and even just thinking about like the rights and stuff for that like there are whole shows I think um, was it like Freaks and Geeks or one one of those kind of shows that were only on for like a season or something where like it kind of hit right in that sweet spot where like nobody ever they hadn't really thought about dvds yet right and so like there's like all these rights clearances where like there's this music and stuff right. that was yeah. in the show but ended up not being on the dvds right. and that kind of stuff like so yeah there's like all these sort of things being worked out at this time but it's it's really fascinating to think about um yeah anyway we've perhaps wandered far afield of, of <laughs> the reception and awards of all that but i just wanted to bring up um that kind of stuff. Also, I want to say good for Karen Gilling getting her yeah. nominations there. Um, yeah, she certainly isn't going to be getting any nominations for selfie. <laughs> so, um, and, and I don't, I like Karen Gillan. <laughs> I don't necessarily mean that to be her fault. It's yeah. just not a good show. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah. we don't no. have to go down that road. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> all, I, all, I suspect... I'm sure we could find for all of the actors on these shows, oh, some yeah. projects, which they will look back on and maybe not be as proud of as some of the others, but I, uh. You know, I suspect that's not one where we're going to be spending a lot of time reviewing. We're not going to do that show. We're not going to do an iteration of the podcast on selfie. Is that what no, you're saying? No, I, 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 we would have to have like pretty much exhausted all other possibilities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's being a little unjust. Perhaps well, there are perhaps and, other and shows that's, that are. That's worse. you who gave it enough of the benefit of the doubt to watch it. I haven't even seen it. Um, yeah. But no, I do, I, I do like Karen Gillan. Um, yes, no, and I mean, hey, she was also in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, that's that that I thought she did quite a good job there. So yes. anyway, yeah. Um, well, but uh, we should probably move on. <laughs> 
let's let's focus on Amy Pond rather than uh, yes. whatever her Eliza Doolittle character is. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's Eliza Dooley or something. Dooley, like right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and the big secret, you know, I'm sure I think everyone said this when she started Selfie was why do you cast Karen Gillan and take away her accent? You know, like what mm. the thing one of the things which makes her so special. So. I'm a big Amy fan. I think you are too. Um, I am. But we speaking go of into, accents, we at oh. some point we need we need to talk about David Tennant in Grace Point. You but know, anyway, which I have to that, admit, I have been diligently recording and have not watched yet. That one I have recorded, and it's in my DVR, but I need to catch up. Okay. All right. Well, we we'll talk about accents at some point. Okay. With that too, because you know. Anyway. We should move on okay. to our favorite episodes of the fifth season of Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, well, and I was going to say, is. speaking of Amy, let's move on to our... Speaking speaking <laughs> of segues, um, <laughs> Amy's choice actually is mine um, that I'm choosing for this. And so there's a couple reasons why I wanted to pick this one. Um, one, because I feel like it's a really pivotal... Yeah. episode um you know thematically in this season um and and like intentionally like blazing red sign with pointing arrow saying pivot point here <laughs> like I, you know title, i don't think it's yeah. any secret yeah. Yeah. that there's that there's a pivotal moment in this episode or or that like, just as an episode as a whole let's name the central episode of the season after the biggest thematic point of the whole season yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so like I'm not claiming to have made any like revelatory yeah, statement yeah. in that, uh, you know, in saying that, but I do, I mean, that's part of why I like it. And, and I'm sure that's sort of the intent is to, you know, have this moment where you have her choosing Rory and, you know, after the shenanigans, the running away, the, yeah. uh, you know, trying to make out with the doctor or perhaps do more. And, mm. you know, the, the various, um, flirtations and all of that, um, and getting to know, know Rory a little bit and sort of maybe be frustrated at his lack of, uh, fortitude in, in, you know, his own sort of questioning and, and hemming and hawing and yeah. this and that. But, you know, at this point, realizing that there really is something deeper between them and that she, not only that we realize it, because I think we sort of knew that already yeah. going into the episode, but just the fact that, you know, it's that she realizes it. And, um, but I also, like, you know, pointing right down into the episode itself, like not looking at the grander scale of the season. Mm. Um, I just like the way it's structured. I like this sort of the dream within a dream uh, yeah. structure of it. Um, you know, I mean, Oh, okay. So it was psychic space pollen. I mean, you know, okay. Wave your hands a little, but mm. um, I, I like the, I like the dream within the dream. I like the sort of the psychological. Yeah look at the doctor and and his subconscious a little yeah. bit and um you know you get the moments of that that you have to sort of piece together after the fact or or you know even on the second watch yeah you know you get those moments of you know i know who this is because you know there's only one person in the universe who hates me right. as much as this person and then you realize later yeah 
it's himself. There's little and, moments you know, of like, like there's like quiet self-loathing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and but there are those things that like you know, okay, so then you start thinking, well, you know, does the doctor really hate himself? Is he overstating it? Is it? Yeah, you know, is that if he does, why does he? You know, and and you're thrown back all the way back right to. Uh, you know, Eccleston, I mm-hmm. think, even in sort of the the anger and the stuff that he had to work through. Um, yeah. To where you get to, like, with Tennant and the Metacrisis Doctor of, yeah. you know, his anger and stuff and saying, yeah. you know, he's at the place where I was when I first met Rose and maybe she can help him too and that kind of thing. But that wasn't that long. I mean, it feels like it was a long time ago. Right. But in the like structure of the story, it's really not all that long ago yeah. that that was that that was happening. Especially you know mid season at Amy's choice, it yeah. obviously yeah. is even closer than than where we are now at the end of the season. So I think I think there's some interesting stuff there to to be thinking about. Like it's easy to see Matt Smith, and you talked about the reception, and we talked about how there's a distinct sort of personality difference in how he's goofier mm-hmm. and he's uh, or. See, now I use the term goofy to describe Eccleston. I don't know that I'm allowed <laughs> to to use goofy to describe uh, Matt Smith. So I'm going to go with um, a very a much subtler and a, a very distinctive term. Okay. Sillier. All right. Silly. He's yeah. silly. He's not goofy. He's silly. Now no, I'm just going to have Monty Python. Stop yeah, that. right. It's too silly. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, there's... There is a silliness. To he him. is there very is, silly. Yeah. There is there is a lot of that, and 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 you get it with like the pratfalls and the yeah. you know slapstick, um, and the spitting out the the spit takes with food mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, those are hilarious. Um, but you do kind of forget that there's an underlying anger and sadness and all of that. Yeah. Um, so I like those moments when you're sort of reminded that there's something a little more desperate yeah. beneath that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I mean, and, and again, and I've said that before that they, they tweak the, um, uh, kind of variables a bit, but basically all the doctors end up working with the same palette. I think mm-hmm. they just sort of, okay, we're going to dial this back or we're going to amp yeah. this up. You know, they tweak with the different yeah. levels and kind of the percentages, I guess. But, mm-hmm. you know, you do have to be able to do both. You know, they do have to be able to be the silliest. But also, I mean, you're talking about Amy's choice, which, okay, yes, the 11th Doctor is one of the sillier Doctors. And that's a pretty silly episode. But what's striking about it is that underlying psychological darkness you know so Mm -hmm. even as we're talking about the funnier doc like one of the funnier doctors and one of the funnier episodes that's kind of one of the things that impresses i think you and me was kind of oh those moments of what's he really thinking does he really think that and and does he really mean that and all that kind of stuff so it is an interesting kind of contrast yeah and well the contrast yeah between Sort of the way he acts, but also sort of you get the in, the internal struggle yeah, too. Yeah. Um, because you know, realizing that it is the doctor who is the dream lord, um, you find you, you know, while well, you say, Okay, why was this whole scenario set up then? If he's if he's the one setting up the scenario, 
he's the one that's making Amy choose between himself and Rory. Yeah. And right. And I I like the ambiguity of not knowing the motive behind that. Yeah. Because we don't ever truly know the motive. Like maybe maybe it's it could be well I know that she's going to choose Rory. I just sort of have to force her hand. Yeah. And okay, that's good. You know. Good. Do that. That's fine. But maybe it's also a little bit I hope she chooses me right. even though I don't I don't think that's sort of the conscious thing that he wants and I think even you know by the time we get to the end of the season and you know he goes to their wedding and he's sort of rooting for Rory yeah. all along yeah. and and all that like I don't think that that's really what he wants but I think there's also sort of a well we've made like the Peter Pan illusions before like there is sort of the Peter Panish idea mm-hmm. of why don't you come along with me you know and do my spring cleaning for me. <laughs> like, you know, like this is, yeah. this Tell is, me stories this is about myself. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is his way of, yeah, it is. I mean, there is some hubris and, yeah. and, uh, but it's that, there. I mean, it like, is the Peter Pan connection, I think is, is illustrative because it's, it's, it is hubristic, but in a kind of innocent way, you know, it's yeah. not malicious. Right. It's not mean spirit. No, no. Yeah. But there is that kind of just naive selfishness, about or 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 unmalicious selfishness, I think. Yeah, and um, and I think I think we even get you know sort of an admission of that to some extent of you know when he's when he's admitting later, not in Amy's choice, you know, he's uh, oh, when was it when he's like you know oh you know you asked me why I needed someone yeah you know why why I wanted you to come along yeah I yeah, mean, yeah there is that admission of you know it's for me it's because I yeah. need to be with someone kind yeah, of thing yeah. so like. Even though, like, I, you know, I don't think, it's certainly not a romantic thing, yeah. you know, with him. But there is the hope that Amy will choose to go mm-hmm. along with him. And so, um, of course, it works out and gets kind of the best of both worlds. She chooses Rory, and then they both go with him. So, like, right. yay, you know, <laughs> like, that's that's good. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that happy ending, too. But I also, there is that ambiguity of sort of the purpose and stuff. And I like the the construction of the dream within a dream to sort of draw that out um yeah you know and 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 yeah i don't i i like complex stories that work yeah like that so um you were also talking about the dream lord and um one thing which i don't know if i got into too much when we recorded the podcast for that episode but um something which i think is interesting about him as sort of a villain is uh, something that we haven't had too much of in the new series, but this idea of like the manifestation of the dark side of the doctor um, mm. that I think we've gotten kind of thematically or symbolically, you know, you have someone like the master who we could kind of see as a flip side of the doctor. Like he's someone who has a lot of traits that are similar, but then is, you know, it's like the, if the doctor made all the wrong choices, you know, he might be the master or, or whatever, like, or he's been compared to Daleks or whatever, mm. um, or Davros maybe, like villains who he shares things in common. But separate from that, I think, is this idea of rather than just compare him to another villain, what if the doctor actually went dark? What would that be, yeah, you yeah. know? And so this is definitely in that vein of like, this is an idea of what that could actually look like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other good example we get in the new series to this point is that whole 
Time Lord Victorious section at the end of The Waters of Mars. You know, you kind of, even though he's sympathetic, you understand why he is doing what he's doing, you know. So he's not a villain per se, but you could see how if he completely went unhinged, the Time Lord Victorious could be a very frightening sort of possibility of where he could go. Yeah. Um, and so I want to bring that up because there was, um, there might have been other examples of this in Classic Who, but there's at least one other one. Um, there was like a long serial in the 80s called Trial of the Time Lord. And I don't, I haven't seen all of it. I don't know everything about it. But one element of it was they, <laughs> the Time Lords put the doctor on trial, you know, for various things, you know, messing with history and the timelines and everything. And if I understand it right, I think his prosecutor is this kind of mysterious figure called the Valiard. And uh, he comes and accuses the doctor of all this stuff and is trying to get him, like, convicted and, I guess, executed or whatever. And it's sort of revealed in the end that he is the doctor from the future. Mm. And it's a little confusing because it... it it's you're not quite sure what it means it's supposed to be like the doctor you know at the end of his regeneration limit that he's about to die i guess and is looking for ways to you know avoid that possibility and so he comes back in time to try to like i don't know change his own timeline or or i think there's something like he's trying to steal lives from his past self i don't know how much sense it makes but okay the but the basic gist of it is that there's this entity called the Valiard who, as far as we know, if he's to be believed, is some sort of future manifestation of the dark side of the Doctor. Hmm. Um, so you know, interesting concept, and I think worth kind of keeping our eye on. Um, and now that we've had a couple versions of that in the show, um, I think it's something to sort of think about. And I. I I think it takes it to the next level rather than just saying, okay, the doctor has things in common with certain villains, yeah. you know, like, you know, like the master, this is actually taking that one step further and saying, given different circumstances and bad choices, it's more than just, they have things in common. The doctor could actually, you know, go that direction if he let it, you know, or he sure. chose to or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, so I, I've seen mention of that in context of this episode that there's nothing that the Dream Lord, the Dream Lord never says I'm the Valyard. But, you know, people were sort of speculating, well, I think when it came out, fan, fans of the classic show instantly latched onto him saying, you know, could that be the Valyard? Or, or, or look at what the things that they have in common, mm -hmm. you know, it could be a sort of, veiled reference back to that you know we're kind of at, le at least tapping into that same idea sure so and i assume there's been no sort of official confirmation one way or the other from moffat or anyone confirmation schmonformation <laughs> this, this is doctor who we don't yeah confirm things or deny things no i don't think moffat has ever come out and said yes or no you know but well even that that but, might but be moffat's the idea no, of... but moffat's no slouch you know he knows his classic show he right i'm right, sure right. any references that we think of i can almost guarantee you that it has occurred to moffat you know and he doesn't i don't think 
let any of that get by him. Mm. So, um, you know, I think, I, I'm sure he could confirm or deny it if he chose to, but I think if people are picking up on that, then it's a fair bet that those oblique references are there because Moffat let them be, you know? Gotcha. Or, or at least he's aware of them as a potential way to read the story. Right. So. Right. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well... Now that we've discussed my favorite at length, we should probably move on to the next section. Yeah. Uh, um, which is season structure. Oh, no, wait. wait we have no, to talk about yours. I'm just kidding. I was just kidding, of course. No. Well, I'm going to backtrack us a little bit. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, and now that I think you joked before before we started recording that now that Moffat's in charge of the show, you are no longer going to pick Moffat episodes. Well, I said, no, I didn't say that per se. (laughs) Like I'm not setting a precedent. I'm just saying that. Isn't it funny? Yeah. Well, and and more like, I don't feel as compelled to pick that one because there are many. Yeah. It's like, there are many when you have lots of money in your wallet, you know, you're not as worried about how it gets spent. And yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, the Moffat episode. I don't. Episodes, that analogy doesn't work at all. I don't think. But <laughs> either way. Well, we we do. We have a wealth of Moffat this season. There so, you go. Um, but I am going to go a, with a Moffat plethora, this time. Even. We have a plethora. Um, I didn't go with Moffat last time, so I'm going to go with him this time. Fair enough. Um, and uh, I'm going with the eleventh hour. Um, I don't know. I know there are people out there because I've read them. Who kind of firmly believe that the first episode of the Moffat slash Smith era is the best. Okay. And that it was all all downhill from there. You know, maybe not quite that dramatic, but even the people that love the era. At least downward trending. You know, or, I mean, I guess there's two ways to look at it. Either that was the high point and everything else has been a disappointment, or I think more commonly, you know, it was just so good, you know, that it set the bar mm. really, really high. I don't know that it's my absolute favorite, but it's certainly in, I think, my top five, you know. I, don't quote me of, on that, but... Of the of, era or of Doctor of the Who Smith, in general? Of the, well, maybe, maybe in general, but certainly of the era, if not okay. of the show ever, you know, I have I haven't really figured that out, so I don't know how confident I am in making that statement. Sure, but, sure. Um, no, I we have really to pin like you it. down now and hold you to it forever. Okay, I have to get my list. Um, yeah. I really like it, you know, so I'm sympathetic to that idea, you know. Uh, and uh, why do I love it? So I think what uh, one of the things I really love about it is that um, I've definitely argued in papers that, uh, you know, the show pretty much since its beginning and then, you know, even or especially in the new show has played with these uh, themes of, you know, fairy tales and, um, you know, children's stories and those sorts of genres. Um, And I've argued that the Davies era did that, Um, you know, but I think it did it more... um, a little bit more obliquely, whereas I think um, what Moffat really, one of the kind of innovations that Moffat made was to say, uh, to recognize that overtly, and then to say, okay, we're going to embrace that, and really, you know, play that up, and, you know, 
not in an unsubtle way, but really just go for it. And, um, you know, and kind of, you know, really kind of embrace that way mm -hmm. of doing the story, um, which is totally what the setup of, you know, and, you know, Amy Pond really does probably have the coolest, you know, origin as a companion, you know, whether or not she's your favorite, you know, or where her story goes later on, I guess, are slightly different questions. But uh, in terms of the setup for a companion meeting a doctor, it's pretty hard sure. to beat, you know, that that snarky, straight-faced, you know, deadpan little girl alone in that big old house praying to Santa, <laughs> you know, when the magical man drops out of the sky and changes everything. Um, you know, and, and I think I said before that that image of her sitting on the suitcase, so excited, waiting for him, is, I think, for me, the most poignant image probably mm. of the show ever. Um, it's certainly up there. So I don't know. There's something about that connection to just really making it explicit of, and again, Moffat with the, with the metafiction and everything, um, looking at the doctor for what he is, which is a child's storybook yeah. hero. You know, and not an uncomplicated one. You know, we talked about Amy's choice and everything. That doesn't mean that he always does the heroic thing or that he's not really complicated, you know, and shaded. But mm -hmm. um, he's also, you know, the this kind of lovable, avuncular, silly, and scary hero to a lot sure. of kids, you know. Or, and, and the kids in a lot of adults, you know. Um, and so there's something about that episode, I think, and especially those first, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, 20 minutes or something, you know, when it's the little child Amy that just really puts that whole kind of, the whole concept for the show into a yeah. nutshell and presents it beautifully. Um, and, like, what a great way to introduce Amy's character, you know, and make like the perfect companion setup that you can, but a great way to introduce a new doctor too, you know? So people also call this, you know, the best regeneration story or the best first episode for a doctor. And I think I'd have to agree with that, you know, that, you know, and I like the others for other reasons, you know, there are things I really like about Rose and the Christmas invasion, which I think are really compelling, but um, there's something about this episode, which is just perfection. I don't know how else to sure. describe it, you know, um, and even, and I think those, that first section really is absolutely perfect. Even when the episode really gets going into the plot and they start sort of running around and trying to fix things, it's still, it doesn't, it's not like it all falls apart. It maintains that quality throughout, you know, that, you know, getting to know Smith's doctor and him getting to know himself and what he's like yeah. um, and getting to meet grown up Amy and getting Rory involved. Um, it's, uh, you know, the other thing that Moffat does really well, and I think his era is really good at um, is like Amy's choice is the mix of the, um, the comedy and the scariness sure. or the darkness and that how quickly it can flip between all those things. You know, there are certain things in the 11th hour which, 
you know, or there's something in the corner of your eye, you know, mm -hmm. that's really creepy, but it's also, you know, really silly slapstick and pratfalls sure. and um, all sorts of insanity. So I think just Moffat for coming up with about the perfect introductory episode, you know, to a companion and to a new doctor and to a new setting, but also how lightly it manages flipping between all those tones mm. throughout. Um, it's just a very well-written and delicate episode um, that has to do a heck of a lot, but it does it so right. well. <laughs> like, actually, when you stop and think about it, you're like, my God, how bad, how wrong could that mm. have gone? And it just, just effort, effortlessly sort of sings along. So, um, sure. That's why I love yeah it. no and it is a it is a fun I mean it is definitely you come on strong um, I understand there's some mm. like I, I can't remember if we talked about this at the time but like there's there's also some differences in sort of production value and and equipment being used and like that kind of thing and they you know you get the regeneration of the TARDIS at the same time like the the different colors mm -hmm. and the sort of yeah. You had the sort of the metaphor of the palette before, but like there's also sort of an actual yeah. palette that changes a bit too. Yes, you know, yeah. The, um, yeah. You know, just sort of the look and the feel yeah, and of, of how the episodes are made, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, there's a different visual color palette for sure. You can, you can pretty, and it's not, some of it is production value getting better, but some of it's just different, you know, but you can kind of tell when you're looking at a Davies era episode and when you're mm -hmm. looking at a Moffat era episode in general. I think. Yeah. And I'm sure I, um, but maybe, again, and, and I didn't necessarily mean to imply that Moffat has a better production value, but I think one, you're just, you're now in a show that's in its fifth season. So it probably does yep. have a little different budget and money to work with. And well, and, and we talked about that getting stronger every year, regardless. And that's going to continue to be true in the mm -hmm. Moffat era. Yeah, too. even the same amount of money is going to, um, to stretch, stretch further. further. Yeah. You know, technology does get, I mean, there's, you know, the, the, um, what's it called? I can't think of it. Anyway, the, you know, the idea that, yeah, like, you know, the same amount of money is going to buy better technology in, one year, let alone yep. five years, you know, so, um, you know, processing yep. power and, and all of that starts getting better and, um, you know, stuff like HD, you know, starts becoming more and more important and, you know, you're, you're sort of paying mm -hmm. more attention and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, definitely, definitely see some of that there as well. But, and that's not, I mean, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the story, but you get things like the Doctor Vision, right, in that first episode yeah. where you haven't had that yep. before. And, um, you know, you can sort of do these cool little tricks that are only cool little tricks if you don't apply them properly to the story. But when you do apply it and say, no, this is the Doctor, yeah. like we're now actually getting to see the Doctor sort of working through his thought process, whereas before it was just all acting. Now we get a little more, uh, you know, yeah. uh, insight into it from from a sort of special effects manner. So, um, Yeah, and I think that is something that the show has gotten more of, and I think even more so now in, like, where I am in now. In season eight, season yeah. Season eight, or 
seen most of season eight by now, um, it, it is getting or has gotten more and more cinematic. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think television this is when you kind of start in general has that. done that. Yeah, so I don't definitely, you know, it's, I don't mean to imply that it's just Dr. Who or anything or, or, you know, mm -hmm. that it wouldn't have been the case if Davies had stayed on that, that very well, maybe as well. Like right. I don't necessarily mean to imply that, but it is part of the, the recipe for the season that these things are happening. So yep. I just wanted to sort of point that out. Um, Yep. But yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I like the 11th hour as well. And as far as an introduction to the doctor, I mean, I still have one more to go. Uh, not, not including this <laughs> yeah. sort of classic stuff. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'll hold out, but I do agree that there's, that there's Deserve definitely, judgment. I mean, I was so sad to see Eccleston go that it's hard to say that I enjoyed yeah. that, you know, regeneration. Sure. Um, and then as 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 shocked as i was and and saddened by eccleston's leaving like the sadness increases by the how little you're shocked when tenant goes because you know it's coming it's coming right. Right. you know it's 10 miles away yeah, yeah. you can see it coming so right. you know that makes it even sadder so you know to say that the endings uh there you, you know, that I enjoyed this beginning of a doctor. I mean, I've only seen one. Other, well, I mean, we don't see Eccleston begin. So it's, you know, it's in Medias Reis. Yeah. It's, it's already happened. Um, and, and then, you know, we're all sort of with Rose, I think when Eccleston becomes tenant, when nine becomes 10 and, and you're just kind of like, yeah, wait, what's going on right now? Like, um, yeah, not, not expecting that. So, Anyway, it, all that to say, it's hard for me to judge at this moment, I guess. But, I mean, it's sure. it's definitely, like, they do come at it with the bang, literally, because the TARDIS is exploding. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and, and ends with the big bang. Yeah, like, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so, all right, maybe we need to talk about season structure now, which is kind of next on our list. Because it's hard to talk yeah. about the beginning without talking about the end. Um, and sure. it does give sort of that idea of the 11th hour. Like this whole season is just one hour. It's kind of thing, you know, you know what I mean? Right. right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. You could take that to extreme with like a show, like how I met your mother, where the whole season literally does happen within like a day, but, but let's yeah. not do that. Like, I don't actually think time-wise it happens within an hour, but there is a sense there. Um, when you get to the end of the season, that has all come back around again. Um, and and yep. because you get back to the TARDIS has been sort of exploding little by little this whole time um, throughout mm -hmm. history. And you're seeing these cracks form throughout all the different time and space places that they go. Um, and presumably in other places, yeah. too, which is why, like, you get the vampires of Venice, you know, because these cracks were appearing, yeah. not just where the doctor happened to go, but it's happening, you know, all throughout. Um, Everywhere. Yeah. And prisoner zero escaping before the doctor actually gets there and that kind of thing. Like, um, yeah. So, so you do get this idea that it's all, if not exactly an hour, it's all this sort of, and, and the idea of the 11th hour being, you know, last minute kind of thing. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm you know, this, this thing that's happening that there's a certain urgency 
to it, but also that it's something that the doctor has been putting off, has been avoiding. And um, you get, mm. you do get that sense in several episodes, you know, that he is trying to avoid yeah. something. And, and even, I mean, we talked about that with, with Tennant and, in the, um, you know, last, yeah. you know, in the two part season finale there, um, you know, before we, that, that he's been putting something off, you know, and at the end of the waters of Mars, you get, uh, that idea that, or not, no, that wasn't the season finale. That was the specials, right? Um, yeah, but that's right before the last, the right before the end of time. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, yeah. I was, I mean, I just had the timing yeah. wrong. But yeah, you get at the end of season, at the waters of Mars that you have, you know, he sees the Ood and then, you know, you find out that he went off and did all these other things before he actually goes and sees them. So, you know, not the yeah. first time that we've seen the doctor sort of avoiding things, but, you know, there's moments here in this season where you get the sense that he should be investigating these cracks maybe with a little mm. uh, more proactive approach <laughs> than he, than he takes, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. so there is, again, there, there's sort of, the idea of putting things off until, you know, the 11th hour and they become so urgent that you just simply can't ignore them anymore. Um, well, and, and the, and potentially, you know, the consequences are exponential, you know, the longer you put it off, the harder it gets to actually yeah. deal with what's going on yeah. and fix it. Um, um, and it all sort of does come around, I mean, you know, back to that, I think. Um, yeah, no, and I think that's a great way to think about it is the bookends of exploding TARDISes, mm-hmm. you know, of kind of a little bang at the beginning and the big bang at the end, you know, and <laughs> it's all the story of how it leads up to that. Yeah, well, um, and I mean, the other thing, and I think the idea too, being that they're actually sort of the same time, you know what I mean? Because it is because right. we we mm-hmm. do get those that night, we do get those moments of. Right, it's that night, and and we get like the comments of like you know it's exploding everywhere throughout all of time, you know, yeah. all at once. So, yeah, there is a very real sense where yeah, it it like the entire season almost takes place in an instant kind of thing. You know, like you get you you do get those right. movies where like oh it was all just like the firing of one synapse that all of this you know thing took place. I don't want to get quite that artsy with it right. but yeah kind of a, a donnie darko yeah yeah like idea. i mean i don't think it's that sort of avant-garde you know on a whole but it's like i do think there is sort of that sense like it maybe kind of leans that way just a little bit um yeah well and and especially i think the other thing which you can kind of do with the title too is it all the whole season takes place in one night from the story of amy and rory too yeah. you know because you have this Tomorrow, idea. Tomorrow you're getting married. Uh, well, I mean, I guess the eleventh hour takes place over twelve years, but mm. once he comes, um, once he comes and picks mm-hmm. up Amy, right, and she's grown up, and it's the night before her right. wedding, and they go off together. The whole season takes place in that one night, you know. And where does the season end? Is with her waking up on her wedding day the next morning and going to get married. So for them as well from that like it's a slightly different thing but it's that same idea of you know we haven't had that before because with rose and martha and donna 
there was always a sense of time progressing for them in the TARDIS the same way mm -hmm. as it is back at home. So, like, a, a few exceptions. You know, there's times where he accidentally brings Rose home a year later. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so it's not it's not an exact science. There's still some of well, that and, kind of Well, and you get sort of effect, the rewind you know? with Martha, you know, the, the year that never and happened it, exactly. kind of thing. But even then, yeah, there's still time that has pro general, progressed, even though some of it gets kind of... Right turn back a little bit yeah yeah but in general there is that sense of movement that when we come home some time has passed and you know it's more or less moving at the same rate you know whereas here it takes that idea and again runs with it you know mm -hmm. for what it is so okay if we have like you know 12 or 13 episode season they're literally just going to go from adventure to adventure and they're not going to come home until the end of the season. And the whole thing has been happening, you know, by the time they, you know, when they actually wake up mm -hmm. in their beds, no time has passed at all. Yeah. Um, so you're, again, you're kind of exploiting that fairy tale yeah. element. Um, but you're right. It does work in with that idea of the cracks and how time is sort of exploding and fracturing and, and whole epics can happen in the space of a second yeah. and everything. Like, basically, the whole Big Bang finale happens, you know, as the dying embers of the universe are sort of fading into nothing. You know, like, what does time even mean anymore mm -hmm. in, you know, by the end with the Big Bang? So. Yeah. Definitely, I think Moffat is showing... I, and I and again, I don't want to say this, like, as any sort of disparagement to Davies, because Davies absolutely built the foundation and grew on top of the, you know, built on top of his own foundation in terms of mm -hmm. structure, you know. So I'm not saying, like, okay, Davies was linear and Moffat's, you know, experimental or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, but I still think that, you know, Moffat has it seems to me like Moffat was sitting there kind of watching what Davies was doing and thinking about how you could take that to new and different sure. places, you know, climbing on his shoulders and saying, okay, what if we really take this mm. to the extreme and what kinds of crazy stories can we tell yeah. with that? Yeah. Um, and I want to mention that too, because um, in this season, um, Moffat follows the template that Davy set up of how the season goes, that we start with, you know, present day England, where there's some sort of alien invasion that they have to repel. Um, and then these two flip flop, but there's a, a past story, you know, usually featuring a historical, historical cameo, um, which in this case would be Churchill, yeah. and a future story, which is often very like, you know, political and dystopian, so you get the yeah, piece yeah. below. Um, so that's our kind of trinity at the beginning. And then he did two two-part stories, which Davies always did, and then Moffat does that as well. You know, you get the um, the angel stories and the Silurians. Mm -hmm. um, and then he finishes with this big, crazy, climactic two-part. That, you know? like, And then you have little standalone... All these different pieces from wherever. That, yeah. Like all the different themes yeah. and everything. And, and um, once again, so, and, and this time though, actually, just sort of at the end, we don't get, it's not that we get like reintroduced to like an old, uh, you know, classic villain. 
we get reintroduced to all of the old classic villains that we've seen Every, so far. Yeah, so it's like, ever, yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, even though it doesn't sort of one up in the sense of, oh, I'm bringing back, you know, this, this, you know, villain yeah. that was a big thing. It's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to expand it so that we just see them all or, you know, or at least exactly all the ones that we've been reintroduced to so far in the new who series. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think I mentioned that before too, that the same thing with like the size of the threat that Davies threats got bigger mm. and bigger every year, you know, to the point that all of reality is threatened, you know, and now Moffat again is one upping, you know, and saying, all right, well, not only am I going to threaten everything, I'm going to erase it so that it never even right. existed in the first place. You know, that's the, that's the size of the threat. Right. Right. Yeah. Davies took us to the end of time. He didn't go so far as to actually eliminate time altogether. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. All of time in history never even happened. So so I think it's interesting that Moffat kept, and I'm sure that was deliberate, that he oh, kept yeah. that structure, you know. Um, and I know it's deliberate, A, because he's kind of smart, but B, because that's not the case next year, um, which is actually kind of intriguing and exciting, I think, that he starts to mm. mess with that format and say, okay, now that we've established a new doctor, a new companion, a new head writer and the viewers are sticking yeah. with us and everyone agrees that it's still Doctor Who. Now we can take that now, and throw yeah, it out the window. Now we can mess around with it. And do, exactly. So, um, you know, we can look forward to that. I mean, we'll have the Christmas special first, which we always sure. have. Um, but uh, pretty much right away in season six, we'll be able to see how that structure is kind of, Okay. Gone. So. Interesting. Um, one of the things, so I want to talk a little bit too about sort of where we leave things at the end of the season, because I think, and this is sort of a running uh, thesis in my mind. So, you know, feel free to like pick it apart or whatever as we're talking here. But um, it seems yeah. like, again, just sort of going off the cuff, it seems like at the end of each season, we get there's there's a sense of loss that that there's something yeah. that so end of season one clearly the loss there is the doctor but also jack like we you know jack dies yeah and um mm -hmm. he comes back and then gets left and behind. then yeah. he gets left behind so it's like it's like yeah 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 even Double though whammy. like <laughs> you know he dies and we're sad and then like rose brings him back but nobody like nobody knows that he's alive again so he gets left on this thing so yeah. there's yeah. there's that loss but also the loss of the doctor himself there's you know he regenerates yeah. and we've talked about how that feels like a kind of death um yeah. The end of season two, it's it's Rose who's lost. Um, yeah. You know, we get this mm -hmm. and, and like irretrievably lost, not dead, but as good as uh, in that yeah. instance. Um, yeah. So then we also get um, so in season three and this is where this is where I was trying to to think about it. So we get season three where, you know, we have we've had Martha. Um, mm -hmm. and the master and, and Jack, Jack again, <laughs> right? Yeah, and the um, master too. Yeah, but really, I think it's that it's it, that it's the master 
because we want yeah. the doctor to be able to save him, right? And he can't. And he and yeah. like so he feels that loss as well, right? So there's I mean, you could argue you know, are we okay with the master being the one lost? But I think in the sense of, you know, the doctor wanting to save him because he's, you know, he and and not even the master, but the um uh uh uh, what's his name when he's at the end of the universe there? The the professor, Yana. Yana. Yeah, yeah. Yana, uh, yeah. You know, when he's Professor Yana, like it's this, you know, this idea that the doctor has found someone, you know, who he, yeah. you know, and we get the face of Bo with, with the, well, I mean, and there's the loss too, I guess with yeah. Jack and all of that too. But, yeah, um, sure. you know, you get the, you know, you get the idea of, you know, you're, you are not alone. So you get this idea that, he finds out he has another Gallifreyan only to be, you know, determined yeah. that he loses them again. And so as if yeah. that's not bad enough, then you get to the next season where, <laughs> you know, you have all the Gallifreyans coming back only to lose right. him. And then you get Wilf, uh Well, and you skipped over when he has all of the companions and then they all well, yeah. And then he has to erase Donna's memories too, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if we I, count that no, as a I, season, I, you're right. I was thinking just right at the end of the thing, but you're right. That whole you have the yeah. companions, and they all leave, and especially and, and Donna. Then you have yeah, the yeah. Horrendous stuff that happens with Donna. Um, you're right because that was that was really yeah. that. I'm see again. I'm thinking. I'm confusing end of season with <laughs> end of Davies era stuff but um, yeah no but yeah no absolutely right you've got it's understandable you you've got the you know davros and everything and um and even there i mean he tries to save davros too so like there's other loss this one feels different at the end yeah because yep one i think just what we were talking about is is you know it all is sort of happening in, in one moment, one night, one hour, what, however you want to sort of phrase that. And so you don't feel that sense that there's any lost time, but you also don't feel mm-hmm. a sense of lost life. I mean, there are people who die and Rory dies or whatever, but at the end of the season, he's back, you know, and, and it's real yeah. Rory. It's not, you know, fake automaton Rory. So like, even that's like, that's, been restored properly but also you you not only you not only not get a feeling of loss i think i said that right not only do you not get a feeling of loss you actually have a feeling of gain because you have now amy with her parents and her parents who were lost at some point are now restored and so i think this is really the first time where we get that that there's that not only has like Mm -hmm. We get moments of, you know, just as once everybody lives. We never have gotten that I can recall. I was actually able to make things better. As opposed opposed to, I stopped the threat. But, you know, normally it's, okay, I stopped the threat and now nothing is worse off than it would have been. Now it's actually better than it was. And, And I think... This is where, again, my sort of tentative to say this, at least with New Who, this seems like the Mm. first, not just season, but story 
like even taking them sort of individually yeah. where that actually has happened. And so I'll throw I'll throw that out there. Yeah. Feel free to correct me or if you think of something, even if it's not tonight, let me know. But like that's sort of my working thesis of that, you know, by the end yeah. of the season, that seems like the place where we are. Yeah. I think that I'm trying to decide how like definitive I want to be because this is the only only the first month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Season uh, and and certainly yet. I don't want to project anything beyond this. I that's why I'm saying yeah. this feels like the first time that happens. Yeah. Maybe there are other times though when that happens after this. Um maybe there's times in Classic Who when that feeling also would exist i don't i haven't seen any classic who so i don't know other than you know minor snippets here and there um so i don't yeah. i don't i want to be clear that i'm narrowing it to the first five seasons of yeah. who that i've seen so far um yeah yeah i mean i think you're right that it i'll go i'll go far enough to say that i think it points to just like all right so i think my analogy would be that just as the actors who play the doctor have a palette that they're working with but they're choosing to um emphasize or de-emphasize various elements you know so it's fundamentally the same but they're tweaking you know with mm -hmm. their portrayal i think the head writer you know the showrunner um, and granted, in New Who, we've only had two. So it would be really interesting to see, you know, when Moffat inevitably hands the reins over, when we get a third, you know, to see kind of if this thesis holds true. But I kind of would submit that the showrunners also are working with a palette of what is mm. Doctor Who, but they have a lot of freedom of what to do with that, you know, and... It's recognizably the same story and the same show and the same characters, but they have a huge amount of influence over what kind of story this is and what do you want to emphasize. Sure. And as much as Moffat gets, you know, put on the, the, the same level with Whedon and George Martin in terms of his callous killing of characters... I know Moffat is often a bit bemused by that. <laughs> like, he'll kind of say, like, how do I have that reputation? And I think it's because... because he killed Rory. Because he kills Rory, but then he right. brings Rory back several times. So, um, you know, I think that... <laughs> we may have more of that discussion his... in the next half of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Um, yeah. But... As much as he has that reputation, and I think, too, because his plots are very mm -hmm. complicated, his humor can be very kind of, uh, you know, sophisticated and dark, um, and his monsters are very scary, you know, that because he does all these really, you know, kind of, I guess, more adult mm -hmm. things, he gets this reputation of darkness. I don't think that's necessarily wholly true. I think there's something, I think... The change in this season kind of points to a slight difference of how Moffat perceives Doctor Who and how Davies perceives Doctor Who. That, you know, and again, we'll keep the discussion open because, you know, what he goes on to do with that is a, is a different discussion sure. altogether.
But I think at least for this first season, he's not just saying, you know, how can I change it up and experiment with these things? But he's also experimenting with the tone of the season two. So even though he's keeping the same kind of like structure and pattern, he's saying, okay, well, what if we went totally in the opposite direction as far as the note of how we end the tone of the season? Mm -hmm. um, and I think he is interested in, I don't know, maybe, maybe for Moffat, Doctor Who is, I think I think for Davies, I would definitely say that Doctor Who is, like, as silly as this sounds, given how ridiculous the show is, I think for Davies, Doctor Who is a tragedy. Mm. It's about the loneliness of yeah. the Doctor. And I'm not saying that the 11th Doctor isn't lonely and isn't dark and isn't, you know, all those things. I don't know that for Moffat, Doctor Who is a tragedy. I think maybe it's a comedy, yeah. you know? <laughs> I think it's about weddings and happy endings. And that doesn't mean that awful stuff doesn't happen along yeah. the way. But definitely, I think in this first season, it ends way more hopefully than Davies ever yeah. ended anything on Doctor Who. Yeah. So I am agreeing with your thesis at this point, I think. Yeah, sure. Right, and that's all I want to limit it to. I don't want to try to project that or, you know, whatever. I mean, I think we can yeah. obviously certainly uh, anal analyze it. I almost said analysisize it, but... Um, analysize. But the, uh, you know, we can continue to analyze it as the story progresses into other seasons and, and whatnot. But, um, it yeah, that just sort of struck me at this point that that it's not just... Right, it's not just about uh, stopping a threat, but it's about, um, yeah. you know, with potentially some collateral cost in doing so, um, but it's but it's about actively making things better for everyone in the long run. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, mm -hmm. that that's cool. Um, and I like both types of stories, so, like, I'm not, I'm not even... Yeah. That's implying that one is better yeah. than the other i i just want to notice that 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 such is the case uh well and i think that speaks to the flexibility of the show and the character again i love the the doctors individually but more so what i love is that there are so many different ways sure. you can interpret sure. the doctor that you know i i love them more because they're only there for a short while and because you know, I love 11 more in contrast to 9 and 10, you know, and vice versa. Yeah. So um, it's kind of that, the fact that it can be anything. And I think the show is very much like The Doctor mm. that way. You know, that you could have as many different versions of the show under any showrunner. And it would always be slightly different because they're going to interpret the story a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, and that it will inevitably cause people to want to choose favorites um, and to malign the ones that they don't like as much. But I like sure, the variety sure. of it. So, um, so <laughs> I feel that we've gone over time. Uh, um, we need to like... We haven't really... Breeze Yeah, we haven't end. really even gotten to like character development and all of that. Um, so... 
Well, let me yes. say one quick thing about the doctor, or more specifically about Matt Smith's version of the doctor. Um, I did want to note that uh, one marker of his popularity was that, uh, according to some retailers, as reported by the mm -hmm. Telegraph, um, in uh, around the time his tenure started in like the late spring, early summer of 2010, there was like a 90% increase in bow, tail size, bow tie sales. <laughs> Excuse I, me, misspoke. Yeah. I said in um, size. You can't get worse than that. Um, no. Um, bow ties were on yeah. the uptick in 2010. And I think anecdotally, that's even true. Like, I think you see way more bow ties now than you, yeah, I, than you used to. You know, but, but even... There are actual numbers right. to that. Retailers were noticing an actual yeah. sales increase. Um, so, yeah, I was saying, um, I was saying, you know, a decade before that, when I was ending my college career, uh, like I knew one person who wore a bow tie, and that was one of my professors. So it was, you know, it's like <laughs> right, right. now you just yeah. Now even you see, you know, four years after this, you see more people in bow ties. Yeah. I well. And I think there is an element of it that you mentioned that before you watched his doctor, you kind of had this impression of him yeah. as a hipster. And so part of it, I think, is that they styled him in such a way that he tapped into a trend of of mm -hmm. style, which was on the rise. Sure. So that's part of it. But the fact that they make such a big deal of that bow tie, yeah. you know, you do kind of have to well, wonder, and, you know. And I like, <laughs> because here, here's the thing, and I actually, I want to read... So I I do I did get that sense purely from the look and and types, types of, clothes of clothes and whatever. Yeah. But yeah, the tweed and the slightly too but, short. But I do want to retract a little bit uh, of that because I mean certainly I would not characterize him as a hipster because I think from a character perspective, like the thing about hipster culture that is sort of the the iconic thing uh, is that mm -hmm. they're being ironic. And I don't think, yeah. I think the doctor is totally no. earnest when he says that he thinks bow ties yeah. are cool. So, so yeah, I, absolutely. If, if I have any sort of retraction, that's what it would be. It's that while I was given that impression, perhaps by images alone, I mean, this is, this is a clear case of not letting, you know, the cover tell the story. So, you, you know, yeah. in, in actually watching it, I don't. And especially seeing the whole, like, you know, the raggedy doctor and, you know, his declaration of no more raggedy, you know, or done with the raggedy or whatever it is, you know, like, yeah. and, and his choosing of his clothes and, you know, and I realize that's an iconic moment too. Like it's the doctor choosing his next outfit. And of course he's sort of limited to what's available in the locker room, I guess, but, you know, he sees a bow tie and he thinks it's cool and he puts it on. And I like that he keeps trying to convince other people, be, not because like, yeah. like you, you, you could get a sense that um, he's trying to convince himself. Like, I, I feel like there was a way to play that where he was trying to convince other people and at, at the same time he's trying to convince himself, but, but he's, he's, it seems like when he says that sort of thing, well, the bow ties are cool. It's like he's more confused as to why people don't understand that bow ties are cool. Not that he's yeah. that yeah. he's actually, you know, convincing himself at the same time. So um, yeah. that would be my reneging of my hipster comment is that he, he definitely seems yeah, no, I mean, in his 
desire, just as earnest in his desire and love for Fez's as well. Although people seem yeah. less amenable, they haven't to that. caught on quite as quite as much. Yeah. <laughs> in particular, Amy and, no, I and think... River. So, yeah, no, definitely, I think, like he definitely is. As much as people tell him he looks stupid, he is cool. Like he looks like his time period he's cool Mm -hmm. for the time you know like and you look at him and he looks like a hip you know guy you know a little weird maybe but definitely like but you're right that there's nothing there's not an ironic you know uh, molecule in the way that matt smith plays the part no there's not um you know so that so in that way he's kind of playing against type mm-hmm. a little bit you know he looks like this hipster um but he's all about the enthusiasm you know in a in a generous and sharing right. kind of way and not in a wouldn't it be funny um, if self yeah. self-conscious yeah, yeah. kind of way yeah so so um yeah i mean i think it's worth noting cuz i think that that is part of it that you know maybe that type of style was on the rise anyway. But I think when in the case of when the course of a month or two in the UK, you know, major retailers see a 90% increase in, in this one type of thing that I think the article says like bow ties used to be 3% of their revenue and then it went up to like 14% or something yeah, yeah. ridiculous. It's like I think there's something going on. Right, yeah. Um, which is really interesting to see that the effect that that had and that that mm-hmm. caught on to the imagination and Absolutely. everything. Um, so, you know, another pointer to the success that he had in the part. Yeah. Um, did we have anything else about the main characters that we have not <sighs> I mean, covered? I'm sure we could talk. Of course, there's always, you know, for stuff. hours yeah. about them. Um, and we, I think we, we brushed over Amy and Rory a bit. Um, you know, I, you know, we talked about the pivotal point of Amy's choice. Um, Rory also, I think is, we talked about, um, sort of the similar role that he has in, in the subsequent episodes, the two parter with the hungry earth and, um, uh, whatever the name of the second part is. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think that's all well and good. And I like, you know, and of course at the end of the season, they're getting married and happy to be married. Amy still wants to snog the doctor. And I suppose that'll never stop. (laughs) Um, You know, but it seems a little, I, when she says that coming into the TARDIS, like on the one hand, I'd have no disillusion. Like she would totally snog the doctor, but like, I also get the feeling that it's also, sort of a half joke you know what i mean like we didn't even snog in the bushes so like this is yeah that that's kind of salty flirtation yeah like you know and if the doctor said okay let's go then she'd be all for it but like that she's not necessarily expecting to either you know what i mean like i at least that's how i read it i don't know maybe others read it differently i'm sure there's plenty i'm sure there's plenty of fanfic out there that takes a different angle on that um <laughs> so but no i think i you know i like the place where they get to i mean i i think it's good and nice and and um i like that we get the other parallel so we get the parallel of the choices i like that by the end we get the other parallel of rory being the boy who waited and for much yeah. much longer than 12 years yeah. um and also 
that and yes okay at that point he's an auton but you know at the same time he's still rory you know with rory's consciousness or whatever so um you know this idea of of him sort of seeing amy through thick and thin uh quite literally you know with all of the you know different Mm -hmm. stuff he does and i like the you know how it's sort of presented as like he's this myth like he becomes the mythological figure as opposed to the doctor being the mythological figure and and um yeah that's cool i like that um and the meeting of amy to like the other amelia and that kind of thing that's all that's all fun Mm -hmm. um can't get away without talking about river though so i feel like at least a few things we need to say one just i love the character so which i mean even before like this was another like you know i knew not who she was but i i still don't really know who she is although we get more and more clues each time but um you know i mean i i definitely had heard her name and i knew who you know the actress was who played her and all of that before um we ever saw her on screen. Um, But I, you know, I like that we continue to learn more. So, I mean, we learned one that she was a prisoner and that, you know, there's something Mm -hmm. evil that she did. And even that it's that she killed someone. And with the heavy implication, I thought that, Mm -hmm. that someone is the doctor. (laughs) Uh, Mm. Maybe I'm completely off base of that, but there seems to be um, in that, you know, whole scene, especially where the, um, the, the soldier guy who's part of the church, um, you know, the cleric or whatever, uh, he, you know, he talks about her killing a good man and, you know, this and that, like there's. Right. And this is who. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like the whole, the protesting too much sort of (laughs) idea. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's all this stuff and, um, you know, yeah. Amy's sort of stand in as the fan, you know, in the moment of, you know, yeah. do you really think it could be yeah. that simple? Yeah. Yeah. It could be that yeah. simple that you two are married and, you know, this is how you guys, you know, do whatever. Um, and the hints and the, you know, teasers and the not quite spoilers of what's to come next or previously, mm-hmm. depending on whose viewpoint you're looking at. Um you know, right. and all that kind of stuff is, is fun. Um, so, you know, I mean, again, like we get to the end of the season and we know a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, I like that scene at the very end, you know, well, n- not the very end. I mean, there's like another scene after it, but you know, with the, the last scene with the doctor and river though, where he gives her back the journal. Um, mm-hmm. and it's like, I didn't read it, you know, whatever. So like you get the sense that like at the, at this point, this is he's he's now fully along for the ride like when when they yeah. first met and even like even with um you know when amy first met river you know and she was all curious yeah. and whatever like you still get the sense of the doctor's thinking like who are you like what are you to be like there's mm-hmm. still this yeah this sense but by the end of the season um he's along for the ride. He's, he's, he's in, he's, he knows it's going to take him somewhere. 
and he's just waiting to see where that goes. And I like that he kind of, yeah. you get that sense that he's there. He doesn't even want to read the book anymore. Um, you know, yeah. like, even though at one point there was the temptation, um, you know, in, in Forest of the Dead and, and or, you know, at the end of the second one there, where, you know, yeah. he's asking Donna, like, what do we do? Should we read or should we not read and whatever? Like, you yeah. know, he's temp- like, it's not he's not just asking Donna if she wants mm-hmm. to. He's kind of tempted there, too, to read it. So, um, yeah. Will she give me permission? Yeah, like, yeah. like now. Yeah. And you kind of feel like had Donna not been there, maybe he would have taken a peek or two. Right. Or if Donna said, um, yeah, OK, he would have gone. But now being, yeah. you know, completely on his sort of own merit, he's willing to kind of let it go and just see where where things wind up and and yeah and i think that speaks to a increased level of trust between him yes and absolutely you know that that the more he gets to know and like and trust her mm. as a companion and an ally and we get and that the more he is less tempted yeah. by that journal. we get that i mean she has already said you know that she trusts him completely but we also get the question yeah. of do you know he him asking her do I trust you, and she her, her mm-hmm. typical noncommittal response to that. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that does show that there's that that he's gaining a certain level of trust there. Um, it'll be interesting to see, and I have no idea when this will happen if it's this coming season or or some other point. Um, it'll be interesting to see though when that sort of has to flip because at some point. There's going to be mm. a point where he trusts her more than she trusts him. I think. I mean, that's sort of the logical progression, anyway. Um, that seems yeah. to me. So um, it'll be. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great point because there are a couple exceptions that you can kind of, if we sat down and put all the river episodes mm-hmm. in order, I don't know that they would quite go linearly. You know, there would be a little bit of having to rearrange things of what comes before what but generally the trend is going mm-hmm. backwards and you i know, sort of the last episode we I, see, yeah i was sort of assuming yeah. that that continues but i mean i can see what you're saying like it yeah, might not always and, be the case but right like i think doesn't technically for her the pandorica happened well no that's right that's right that the pandorica and the big bang would have happened first and then the then the angels mm-hmm. episodes, right? Because she then the library, episodes. right? She so says, "I remember right. it well." With, um, when he when the yeah. Pandora yeah uh, thing comes up, so so there is that there is that sense that she even though in the Pandora she's still obviously very close to the Doctor. I think you're definitely right that they're going the opposite way, and that in theory, the more he gets to know her the less she should get yeah. to know him, you know, and, and there, so there might be some of and that. And hopefully kind of there'll be a point like there in the middle where they both, they yeah, where they the both middle, kind yeah. of are good together and know each other well enough that right. they completely trust each other. But, you know, it seems like yeah. that there will be that point where that'll be the interesting part of, of when, and I don't, I mean, maybe we haven't even gotten to the point of where they actually meet you know, in, in the series, even now, because I, I would hope that they just sort of keep playing with that for a very long time. But, um, you do get, even, even with that conversation, you know, that, that last conversation they sort of have together, um, 
is, uh, you know, the, the toying with the, are you married? You know, are you asking, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. And then it's like, and there's still the confusion. So there's still, I mean, clearly still toying with that idea of maybe they are, maybe they aren't, maybe, you know, maybe they're lovers, maybe they're not really, maybe it's just always been a flirtatious thing. And, you know, who, who knows really what's going on? Um, River seems yeah. to know, you know, but maybe she's also, I mean, she's also wily and tricky and, you know, maybe she's mm-hmm. leading on to more than uh, maybe is actually there. But also at the same time, you do get the sense that she does have complete trust in the doctor and like she, like that's not just lip service that she actually trusts him and that it's, uh, uh, yeah. she's willing it doesn't seem like she's willing to go out of her way for many people or things, but the doctor mm-hmm. is one of yeah. them that she will. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that it's not even that she knows what he's going to do. Although sometimes she can intuit that, um, you know, because she knows him so well, but it, but like, that's not even it. It's just that she trusts his instinct so well that whatever he does, she believes it'll be the right yeah. thing. So, I like that. I like the the sort of the play there. I like the complex. I mean, we're back to I like complexity. So I like the complexity of figuring out like a storyline. And and I have to wonder, like mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about um, this was several episodes ago, I'm, I believe uh, we talked about sort of the planning that goes into putting together a season like this versus um, yeah. like the Davies era, which seemed less planned in that way to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And you seem maybe Mm -hmm. a little skeptical that that might be true, but um, I would wonder, and this is something that I like, if I were to ever have a private conversation or not even private, but you know, just a face to face conversation with Moffat, like how much of their storyline did you have planned out when you introduced river? Like um, realizing at the time that he wasn't even the showrunner. So like, you know, was it just right, right. A, a cool character that he put together and it sort of developed on the fly? Or, you know, when he realized this was going to be a recurring thing, like, you know, at what point did he sort of really plan out the trajectory of their relationship and how all of that works out? Um, because yeah. I do know that, like, is, so to compare to Whedon again, I know that there are already elements of Buffy that we've seen um, in this in in that show that won't come to fruition for another season or two um, mm-hmm. that are hints and, mm-hmm. and, you know, laying the groundwork kind of things. But uh, you know, yeah. Moffat seems like a similar, if, 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 if yeah. we don't, um, you know, if we reject the idea that maybe he kills people off as readily as we, as we then, at least I think we mm-hmm. might be able to accept the idea that he plans certain elements out um and and prepares for them uh maybe in a longer term way than it at least seems that Davies did but and I think also to bring that back to the structure too the other thing which is different about this season um is that um it all of the mysteries and plot threads aren't resolved at the end mm. of the season. Whereas now I don't want to say that Davies never did that, but what Davies seemed to do to me was to maybe more retcon to retroactively mm. go back 
and make something mean more than it meant at the time. Yes. So I don't know that when, like, for example, for example, I don't know that when he had the doctor depose Harriet Jones, that he knew that he was going to bring her back later right. on, you know, or even or, the ring, or that the when he, ring. or, or even the ring, I don't, he said he didn't necessarily mean that he would use the ring when he killed off the master. He didn't know that he was going to bring him back later. And I think he's a really good retconner. He makes it seem like, oh, it couldn't have gone any other way. You know, in retrospect, you think, oh, how fitting, and it works mm -hmm. together really well. But I don't know that he deliberately, I think he just plants seeds and doesn't know which yeah, one they're going to yeah. grow Yeah, like that definitely seems um, more. Where, whereas I do think Moffat is more the puzzle box. Mm -hmm. Deliberately He's an saying, engineer. I'm he, laying yeah. my, I'm laying my Easter eggs in here. Um and I think you can get that because Davies, even though he would pick stuff up mm -hmm. later, he would wrap up his story elements by the end of the season. You know, if he had any mysteries, yeah, like major he would tie things, them up. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, whatever. Whatever it is on a given season. Whereas here, you're getting River and her mysteries d deflected to a whole other mm -hmm. season. We're not even going to... We go the whole season. We don't... You know, we get clues, but we don't learn who she is or who she right, is, right. how she knows the doctor. We don't get any resolution about what crime she's committed. We don't get any resolution. Yeah, about just again, her vague hints. Relationship yeah. with the doctor. It's just all we're not even going to deal with that. Also, you know, we get um, the kind of you know tripartite mystery of the cracks and the silence, mm. um, and what else. There's another bit to that. I forget. But, you know, so the cracks are... And the Pandorica. So the cracks in the Pandorica, I feel like we understand, but not the silence. Right, we you still know, don't the, really the know what it is. The silence is still out yeah. there. So you kind of start to get the idea that Moffat is not only laying the groundwork for his... So in the 11th hour, when he introduces all mm -hmm. that stuff. I don't think he's just laying the groundwork for the 11th hour. He's laying the groundwork for his era. Yeah. You know, that there are certain, or at least the 11th Doctor era, let's say. You know, that, you know, there are certain elements that are going to carry forward into further seasons. And it's not all self-contained within the sure. first season that he's going to continue to develop those yeah. things. So, yeah. I think he's definitely, um, his style, yeah, maybe he is more planned in that, like, I don't, I think Davies does lay all this you know all these puzzle pieces out but he doesn't necessarily know further than a season ahead which ones of them are going to be important later whereas i think moffat is thinking more yeah. long term yeah right the things that yeah. he's planting he actually expects to nourish at some point and have them sprout and he expects to nurse and he expects to nurse them much further down He's not just looking at the end of mm -hmm. this season. He's looking to further seasons, you know. Whereas I think maybe Davies, that maybe that's the difference. That Davies thought very much a season at a time. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> well, we are very much over. Um, I want to mention. I think we've talked a lot about the themes. So I think 
if it's okay with you, maybe we'll skip to Sarah Jane. Yeah. Unless there's any other big thematic stuff that. You no, I. I mean, I think we've hit most of it. Um, I think maybe the only thing that we didn't really talk much about here is the memory stuff. Um, yeah, but I, and I think that is. Im- I think that is important because that's a continuation of something that started. I think with Davies, especially with Donna and the mm-hmm. later stuff, you know, and how important, you know, that towards the end of that story, you really get the sense that you're really defined by your memory, you know, or your memories and people's memories of you. Um, and in here, you totally get that literalized, that it's Amy's memories that save yeah. everything. You know, and save the doctor, right. save Rory, save her parents. The whole universe is thanks to Amy's Right, and you memory. get that, so. you know, her standing up. I remember, you know, the, um, yeah. you know, that, and that's great. But um, I guess I just, I mean, I do think that that's important and that, you know, is a big theme of the season, but also that kind of, at the end, it's done its purpose. So that is, I would say, another element that sure. maybe gets wrapped up Um not to say that we won't revisit the idea of memories next season, but I feel like that's not right. one of the loose threads we were just talking about. Like, I mean, I think you're probably right. Like, I can't say for sure that it won't ever come up again, and nor nor would that be a problem. But probably, probably the Donna story, and then this this first season with Amy are the two where that theme yeah. is most. Yeah. forefront yeah I so think. um i don't think we need to elaborate necessarily but let's talk about the you want you had a few things from sarah jane adventures uh with the crossovers there i do um so because we get it we do get a crossover here i'll link to it in the show notes um that matt smith did a cameo on the sarah jane adventures um in october of 2010 uh so this would have been after season five and before the Christmas special and before season six. Um, it's called Death of the Doctor, which is an interesting title. Um, it's uh, a few production things. It was written by Davies, so it thrills me that he got to write for the 11th Doctor. That makes me really happy because, again, I've said Moffat has asked him to come back to the show and he keeps refusing. So unless he relents, you know, this was his chance or that was his chance to write for the 11th Doctor. Maybe he'll get to write something later on. Um, and it's nice to hear the, the 11th Doctor quirks as, as interpreted mm. by Davies, because it's just fun to see him getting into the, like all the little... Like, there's something where he says to Sarah Jane, come along, Smith. You know, like taking the come along pond and just adapting it. So he's watching the show and taking those quirks and making sure that it's an 11th Doctor story you know it's not just writing for his same old doctor he's making sure to write for you know the new one um and uh so that's pretty cool um what's less cool uh is that uh this is the last on-screen appearance of the doctor of any doctor with sarah jane um and it's the only time that liz sladen got to act with Mm -hmm. matt smith um and that's because she died not long yeah. after this. Um, and it's terrible. Um, so this was in the midst of the last yeah. season of Sarah Jane okay. Adventures. Um, 
And it's a short season, I think, because she got very sick and they weren't really able to finish it. So the last couple episodes aren't really super final, you know, because they didn't really know that they were going to be finishing it so soon. Um, so it's terrible. And I think, uh, uh, I think I have this in the show notes for the, it might've been in the premiere for season Mm. six. She died like a couple days before the show premiered. So it's like they dedicate it to her and it's like literally like four days previous Mm. she had died. So, uh, I don't know quite how long she was sick, but she was only really sick for a pretty short time, sure. it sounds like. Um, and, yeah, it's terrible. And it, it makes the episode a lot sadder. Um, but it also features um, another old yeah. companion, um, Katie Manning, um, who played Joe Grant in the 70s. I think she was Sarah Jane's predecessor just before Sarah Jane came on. Uh, was Joe, um, and I I hadn't watched this before, and I've seen a little bit of her um, from the seventies, but I think it was really cool to see, obviously to see another companion and to see them kind of do for Joe what they did for Sarah Jane in School mm-hmm. Reunion and kind of bring her back, but really cool because they're so different. You know, Sarah Jane's very, you kind of realize how kind of mature and gentle and quiet and all these things and joe's just like this like ditzy crazy and especially as they have her kind of as the older you know she's got her grandson there and everything she's like this batty old nutty grandmother and everything um and you know completely different but also have in common this experience with the doctor Um. Yeah, no, and also, but you get that sense that she is still sort of traipsing around the world, um, even with the mm-hmm. grandson who is like, my mom's never even around. Like, so it's not, so it's like this whole, like, yeah. generational thing, too. Like, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and, and I mean, the episode's really good. I think people should check it out. There's a couple thematic things which work with, the Moffat era, which I think are interesting. And I think Davies is kind of picking up on them and Mm. playing with them that, um, you know, there's this idea of going back to Amy, the idea of the waiting, you know? And so you have, you know, Joe gives, you know, a kind of a speech about how, uh, she waited for him and, you know, her whole life and everything. And she thought, you know, very much like Sarah Jane, she thought he'd come back and he never did. Um, and there's this, really sad little moment where she hears how Sarah Jane has met him recently and had all these adventures. And she just looks at her and she says, he must have really liked you. And it's like, Oh, (laughs) you know, that Sarah Jane has this special Mm -hmm. status and not all of them Mm. have that special relationship. But then you also have this contrast where Sarah Jane is very much the girl who waited, who never got married, who never really, she had a job, but she, you felt like until she met the doctor again, she never really lived her life to her fullest potential. She kind of stagnated and waited for him. Whereas Joe's very much the opposite. You know, as much as she talks about waiting for the doctor, she also talks about she got married, she had all these kids, she went and explored the world. You know, she kind of did what Donna talked about doing and didn't do which is like walk the earth you know and get into all these adventures and she like 
rafts down the Amazon and all this stuff. So, you know, the doctor kind of talks to her like, you didn't really need me because look at what yeah. you did. You were living, you know, the exciting life all on your own. Um, so in that way, she, you know, is a little bit more whole than Sarah Jane yeah. was. So, um, interesting. I think is Davies is kind of playing with those waiting themes there. Um, uh, I mean, there's some other stuff too. Like they talk about the last doctor's regeneration. Sarah kind of worries about him and wonders if he was okay. And the doctor kind of consoles her about that. Um, and, uh, one thing which is really interesting is the doctor makes an offhand comment that he can regenerate 507 times. Um, now, there are two things about this. R rule one, the doctor lies. Right. <laughs> the other being... <laughs> As River so, Always worth remembering. Us. Yeah. Yeah. The other being, somebody pointed this out, that 5 plus 0 plus 7 equals 12. And 12 is our regeneration limit, which gives us 13 bodies. So... Are we meant to take this literally that remains mm. to be seen? You know, is he being flippant in that moment? You know, uh, but interesting that that he that he throws that out there. Like, don't worry about me. I'm not running out of regenerations. Mm -hmm. You know, I can keep going forever. Um, right. Yeah. No. See. And what else? and I know. Um, so and of course, I mean, we're only on the 11th doctor, but the show is on the 12th mm -hmm. now. And I know that there's been some fan concern over how many regenerations. What yeah. There means. can be yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, in a show like doctor who, I feel like they'll come up with some explanation for when we get to 14, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway. Right. And then maybe that was Davies kind of cheeky attempt to solve the regeneration crisis. Oh, it's not 12. It's 507. You know, but uh, it's worth noting, yeah. I think. No, it, it is, definitely. I just, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out, I guess, because, I mean, we're still a little bit away from that. But anyway. Yeah. Um, the, the final thing was that, um, or two more things, then we're moving on to Angel. Um, there is, you know, the, the, the title, The Death of the Doctor, you know, and obviously... The, the, the whole thing is sort of about this idea that the doctor has died off stage and that they have to go to his funeral. And they're really skeptical the whole time. Like, the doctor can't really be dead. And there's this notion that if they both kind of believe that if the doctor died for mm -hmm. real, that they would know it. You know, that something, you know, something would tell them. They would get a feeling. So, you know, I think that's kind of an interesting notion. Um, and especially because you've kind of mentioned your speculation that, you know, potentially, you know, the doctor is the good person who River might have mm -hmm. killed. So, you know, it might be interesting to start thinking about what would the death of the doctor be like yeah. um, and what kind of effect would it have. Um, so, uh, and then the last thing, which I think you mentioned, too, was... Uh, they talk about the other companions, yes. all the other classic companions, and the fact that uh, apparently, <laughs> in between all his other visits before he regenerated, the Tenth Doctor took a look back at 
his older companions yeah. as well as the ones that we got well, to and, see. And, that, um, and honestly, at the time when I said that, because I think I told you that like last week. So like it wasn't even like yeah, um, yeah. just a minute ago. But like in the context, I wasn't even thinking at the time about this being a Davies episode. But he's the one who wrote yeah. the farewell tour. So like like it, yeah. that gives yeah. it even oh, like, yeah. I mean, OK, it's part of the story so it's quote canon but like um yeah it gives it even like more credence that like he's the one who wrote yeah. that farewell tour and now is putting words in the doctor's mouth that says he went and saw everybody and it it's like so we get this whole extended goodbye but it's like even that much more extended now and yeah and you wonder because okay so he really did have loved these companions that he visited one how many more companions did he have off screen right because we get hints about him you know frolicking with elizabeth the first and that sort of thing so like <laughs> yeah. like there yeah. are like all of these offhand references right. to people you know being on virginia wolf's bowling team and that kind of thing like how many more of yeah. these other people you know did he know that he went and saw and potentially i mean this could have been years of his life that he was doing this you know and tra i mean sure. in tracking them down or whatever um which is also the other thing is did he know all this time where all of these people were and how to find them and what what kind yeah. like even though he never bothered to go do that before could he have at any time say found sarah jane right um right it kind of sounds like from with joe that he does keep yeah tabs on those right that's what i mean like know? that's it it very much yeah. gives that feel so yeah yeah i anyway i i don't know i i mean we don't know because we don't get a definitive answer but it sort of seems that way that you know puts into perspective sort of jackie's uh, comments about those he leaves behind, uh, you know, way back yeah. then. And, and Sarah James as well, sort of repeating that in a different sense. Um, you know, but that there is, he does leave them behind, but he doesn't forget about them. And in the context of the comments about memory, even in this episode, as well as all, you know, mm -hmm. throughout season five, um, that, that he also has memories and that they are important as well to him anyway, and yeah. that um, it's not just dump them and leave them and forget about them, but that there is, that there right. is, uh, you know, there is memory and even, you know, apparently n not just, oh, it was nice when, but that he could actually go look people up if he wanted to. He just doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Whatever that now means. Now that we're like... Yeah, I, what I, like we were grossly over time like a half hour ago. So, um, yeah. On to uh, all right. On to a, a very well, uplifting. It's a good thing episode. it's a. It's well, I was gonna say it's a good thing it's not a very important episode, which is coming up. I'm sure we can breeze through this, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, where would you like to begin? Well, let's begin with some production and behind the scenes, because. I have a feeling that that is kind of mm, important this yeah. time around. All right. So not a lot of production notes, but I did want to note because we do try to mention these sorts of things. Um, this, as you have noted, is a somewhat significant episode. We're not quite to the middle of the season yet. We have a couple episodes, I think, before we get there, but we're 
we're kind of getting there. So this is, you know, big, big one. Um, so in 2003 to 2005, there was um, a magazine called Angel Magazine um, that corresponded with Buffy the Vampire Slayer magazine. And these were both British uh, <laughs> magazines. Um, Funny that they're British. Yeah, like I don't I don't know, but, but you know, they... Um, now we're talking 2003 to 2005. This is actually after, I believe the show ended. So this, you know, we're talking, or might've been like the last season, you know, that it, that it started okay. being published. So it's, you know, in syndication at this point and probably Britain got it. Cause we're, we're not at the point of like worldwide, you know, premieres, especially for shows that are on fledgling networks that have only been around for so long. Right. So, um, yeah, you know, this, it may be, that the rise of these magazines corresponded better to when they started airing in Britain and that kind of thing. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, the angel magazine eventually folded into Buffy magazine and all that, but they did as might, you know, happen with like, say the doctor who magazines, um, they did publish, <laughs> uh, these various like best episode lists, uh, and that kind of thing. Right. Um, so angel magazine, uh, listed this episode in one of the top five best episodes of, of the series. So um, maybe not yeah. too hard to see how that might come about. Um, there was another, there was a, a website, slayage.com, which is different from the Slayage Journal. No affiliation there, but it was um, a fan site that doesn't seem to have been updated in a number of years. So it's not really mm. active any longer, but it was active through like, you know, 2008 or so, I think. Um, and they listed it as number eight in their top 10 list. So, you know, just sort of generally speaking from a fan perspective, definitely uh, this episode yeah. is up there. Um, so we just got done talking about Sarah Jane and the actress uh, dying. Well, we can't really avoid it because um, we need to talk about Glenn Quinn, who plays Doyle in this episode. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is why we say watch the episodes first. Doyle dies uh, at the end, um, yeah. heroically. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. there's a very sad real-life story there as well. Um, we've actually made um, an, several references to how much Doyle drinks in the show. Um, yeah. Apparently, that was also true in real life, that uh, Glenn Quinn... Uh, perhaps due to his Irish heritage or, you know, if we don't want to be stereotypical, we could just say it, that, that he enjoyed it for whatever reason. Um, but he did have a substance abuse problem. Um, and not just, not just sort of, you know, quietly on the side, but, um, actually I'm got a little passage here from, um, the Joss Whedon biography by Amy Pascal that just came out uh, a couple months ago. Uh, basically she says there that, um, you know, that, that he had a substance abuse problem and it was starting to disrupt production. Um, the producers, so, you know, David Greenwald and, um, Emmy Whedon was a producer as well. So I, it doesn't get into exactly who, but basically they spoke to him about it. They said he needed to get it under control and if not, he would be fired. And, and so, um, basically boiled down to, they, did exactly that, that, um, you know, that they, that they killed off Doyle, uh, and that it was a 
sad turn of events, Greenwald says, but um, they kind of hope that by firing him that he might seek out some help and and get control of his addiction or addictions and all of that. Um, unfortunately, it did not really happen out that way. Uh, a couple years, uh, so we're so this is 1999, um, late 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, in December 2002, uh, so like three years later, uh, at the age of 32, he uh, was found uh, dead in a friend's apartment in North Hollywood um, from drug overdose, heroin. Actually, I think uh, it was. So you know, very very sad, um, and it kind of kind of goes to that last scene where we see him, right? This sort of haunting, you know, is this it? Is this the end? And yeah. in a way, it kind of was for, for, obviously for Doyle, the character, but also for the actor. He did star in a couple other, like, low-budget, like, TV-type things, um, but didn't really ever do anything of note um, after this. So, you know, really unfortunate. Um, I do want to point out, though, that even though they you know killed Doyle off and and some of that timing had to do with uh Glenn Quinn's death um actually it appears that Joss already sort of had that plan in and that um uh David Fury who we've talked about before uh who was one of the writers on the show has confirmed that they actually meant to bring him back in a later um in a later episode. Now there is a, there's sort of different versions of like mm. why and how and all of that kind of stuff. And, in right. in that Buffy, the vampire slayer magazine that I just was referencing the British one, um, we didn't actually said there was always a plan to kill Doyle. Um, and, and he kind of goes into there being sort of this intensity between, um, that character and Angel's character and kind of how like it was too much for one show. I mean, I, I kind of like how it worked out. Unfortunately, we don't, we'd never get more than half of a season to sort of see how it would have played out. But um, that was a sort of contemporary, uh, you know, a contemporary rendition from Whedon. Who knows if that's just him sort of defending himself and trying to put a good face on it and, and saying, well, you know, this is why, um, but he did say that when he talked to Quinn about it, that he was going to give him a hero's exit. And certainly we see that in this episode. Um, David Fury, as I mentioned a minute ago, um, talked about, uh, a little more generally, um, you know, the idea that Joss wanted to put a character in the main credits and then kill him off. And, and we even talked about how, you know, back way in the first couple episodes of Buffy, uh, in season one where, um, you know, you have Jesse who is sort of set up to be one of the Scoobies and he gets turned into a right. vampire and then dusted, you know, by the second episode. So, um, this is not necessarily a new thing with Whedon. Um, but David Fury actually, actually says that Whedon didn't want to kill off Doyle. Um, but it became the situation with Glenn Quinn and that, uh, it just became, a very difficult sort of thing to work with. And, uh, and, and then he goes on to say that Doyle was uh, meant to return to the series at some point, but that Quinn actually died before they could work out a story to bring him back. So um, there, you know, the ambiguity, like in, in retrospect, you know, it's, it's sad to sort of see that last scene with 
Doyle knowing that he doesn't come back and knowing that the actor, you know, that there were some real life situations that prevented that. But, um, you know, the ambiguity yeah. of that sentence too. Like, I think they're, you know, it's one of those, like we were just talking about with Davies, you know, planting a seed that maybe could come to fruition later um, and just never did. So. Yeah. Well, you could read that last uh, question of, is that it? Am I mm-hmm. done? A couple different ways. Like there is the, like kind of a, I mean, obviously the irony of the opening with the end of the show that, yeah. you know, that, those lines, you know, playing ironically at the end when when you have them in the new context. But also, you know, you could read them as just that ironic statement of ending the episode on the kind of sad, ironic note. But also, you could maybe read that as kind of a, a slightly open door mm-hmm. for potential future stories. That that's an unresolved yeah. question. You know, that is that it? Is he done? Mm-hmm. Could he come back? You know, at the time, maybe they thought. And it, yeah, could, it seemed to know? be that, that, that they actually did think that at the time, but. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know whether they deliberately meant those lines to be like a clue or anything, but, but there's that openness mm-hmm. yep. to them, you know, that it's a question, not necessarily a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's totally, I mean, I mean, the the real-life story is kind of sad enough, especially because, I don't know if you mentioned this, but you also had in your notes the bit about how much he enjoyed getting to speak with his natural actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. That there was something really, there was something really, I think, it seems like freeing Mm -hmm. about that. And so I think (laughs) the gut punch is that you want him to be well enough to enjoy that you know and to get to really stay and have a stable job you know and a good career and maybe get to you know recover Mm -hmm. a bit from these problems um so it's just a shame that it dragged him back down again um, so okay so before before angel doyle Doyle, glenn quinn was on Roseanne for seven seasons, which um, mm-hmm. is actually, he, he had a near miss with Whedon on that show because Roseanne was the first show that Whedon wrote for. Right, um, I thought of that, right. right. Is that where Whedon well, picked him up, well, I wonder? I doubt it because Whedon wrote for that show in 1989 and Glenn Quinn didn't start on it till 1990. Um, Whedon, I think okay. I think it was the second season of the show that Whedon wrote for, and he was only there for the one season. Okay. Um I, I could have that wrong. It could have been a different season. But anyway. Um, okay. But they, but they didn't overlap. They they just other. sort of, there was a narrow miss. I would be surprised. I mean, I would imagine just by the nature of who he is, you know, that Whedon probably still knew people on that show when he was there. Right. Um, or saw, or saw and, the episode. And when... Um, yeah. When Glenn Quinn came in to audition for the part of Doyle, he actually auditioned in an American accent. And and Whedon, mm-hmm. either because he knew him or maybe, you know, they were talking beforehand or whatever, said, you know, can you do it in, in just your normal accent, your Irish accent? And he did it, and, and they liked that better. Um, so there was a, mm-hmm. the, a interview in the Irish Times where Quinn said um, he, he, he worked on Roseanne for seven seasons and did it and did that. Um, you know, that whole time with an American accent. So 
you know, to the Irish Times, he says, you know, he's, he'd, he felt like he'd been hiding for so long that it was amazing to have that freedom. Uh, it was like putting on an old pair of shoes. It's bringing my soul back to life. And of course, in a show about a vampire with a soul, like, you know, I mean, that feels like, yeah. it, and, and maybe he totally intended, I don't know, but, you know, maybe he totally intended that sort of, uh, you know, connection, but it, it, it just, you know, there's a resonance there where, it, yeah, it does feel like, oh man, that's, it's just too bad then that, you know, that, you know, talk yeah. about self-destructive, you know, uh, that, that just, mm-hmm. that, that was there. Um, so enough. Sorry, well, and but, it kind of, to kind of transition into Doyle. That's a bit what more, I was going to do. It, it, <laughs> I think what Joss said is, like whether or not you agree with Joss's assessment that Doyle wasn't a good fit because of his intensity maybe being a little bit too similar to Angel's Mm -hmm. intensity you know you could agree or disagree with that but I think he's onto something in picking out the fact that Doyle has an intensity Mm -hmm. to him you know that as much as he's kind of the Whedon character He's a little different, I think, than Xander and Wash. Mm-hmm. Certainly different than Wash. Xander has some dark edges to him, but not quite like this. You know, his are more about... It's more like his, dark his humor. His flaws are yeah. a little bit... Yeah, his and his flaws are a little bit more... Uh, they're not quite to that same level of self-destructiveness, mm. you know, or at least not yet. You know, that, like, he hasn't lost mm-hmm. everything yet. You know, there's still hope for Xander. <laughs> Whereas, like, Doyle is sort of what could happen if those self-destructive tendencies yeah. kind of really did drag sure. you down. And, which is interesting, I think maybe intentionally or not, I think some of Glenn Quinn's kind of own conflict must have seeped into that, into the writing and the playing yeah. of it. Um, and maybe that's kind of what I was, what really struck me about like the bachelor party and stuff was that like, as much as that is a fun and silly episode, I was really struck by Doyle and how kind of like sympathetic in a, but also not just like, Oh, I feel sad for him, but like really kind of, dark and upsetting and 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 that you felt like he had there's a similarity to the actor there and that you feel like he has the potential for you know stability and normalcy and family and all these things and gets dragged down because of these flaws that are difficult to you know or these addictions which are difficult to shake um so it's interesting, like how much of that kind of aspect mm. of Doyle comes from the actor. Yeah, and I would not at all you be know? surprised. Like, you know, you even get in this episode where, you know, he's, he's you, you have the flashback, right, to where he sees the other Bracken demon. And um, he's like, you know, if you wanted to get to know a lone shark, I could tell you that. And you kind of feel like that might also be true of Glenn Quinn. You know what I mean? Like, like that, that sure. he kind of knows how to deliver that line maybe. And I, you know, I mean, I don't want, yeah. I don't want to talk 
you know, too much about the similarities between the characters. Cause I honestly just don't know, but, but I do think. Yeah. No, but I think he could tap into that, whether he literally was ever in that mm-hmm. same place. It seems like he knew, you know, there's something about, he knew how to mm-hmm. play that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so with Doyle, obviously we get the, he, so obviously he's the eponymous character here, right? So we get the the, yeah. the title of the episode is Hero, and we get the end where Doyle does his heroic thing. Um, and of course, in sort of a, you know, we're, we're continuing. I think we, we haven't had as many with Angel so far of the one word episodes that are sort of, episode titles that are sort of ambiguous. I know we've had that with uh, Buffy a couple mm-hmm. times where we've sort of called called it out one or two words you know like very short uh episode titles that that leave a lot of room for interpretation um and yeah and you get that there's a lot of things you know not just the video that sort of gets reinterpreted at the end but there's also the conversation with between angel and doyle where they're talking about what it means to be your hero and how you never know until you uh you know until you until you're in the moment you know what you're going to do and that kind of thing and that totally when they're having that initial conversation and you're thinking it's angel, you know, that he's referring to the past that he didn't know what he was going to do until he had the moment when he could choose, um, you know, whether to go back to being a vampire or to stay in his sort of happy life with Buffy and all of that. And then you find out, no, yeah. it's actually setting you up for Doyle's decision later and his realizing, Oh, I actually understand that now. Um, you know, so yeah. I think there's there's a couple of things like that, but um, yeah. What? So I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, did you did you sort of predict any of that twist in in the hero thing? Because I I, I partially asked because I wonder sometimes how much I give away, and I like <laughs> I I think I mentioned that this might be a Doyle centric episode. Um, so I. If I gave anything away by that, then I apologize. But, um, you know, I, I guess I'm sort of curious, you know, what, you know, when it was playing out, did you sort of see that coming or what were your thoughts as that happened? No, I mean, I definitely didn't see it coming until pretty far into, like, I think as he's making the decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like by I the time he punches Angel that. out well, and you know he... that what he's going to well, do. Well, like, yeah. 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 Or even just that moment before where he's kind of starts talking mm. about the heroism mm-hmm. again. You're kind of going, oh no, where's mm-hmm. this going? But like, I th- no, I mean, I think I thought it was going to be Doyle centric. I, the, I mean, you, you said that, but also like the, the previously on section all highlights, you know, oh. his story, what we've seen so far. And um, I, I always forget. His, relationship with cordy i always forget everything. that you watch it on netflix and they have that i i i watch I know, it on the dvds the little, and they don't have those i get on the little the DVDs, preview so. okay so so they sometimes tip you off to things sure. like that so i think i thought like this is going to be the finally culmination of uh his relationship with cordy which it is it's just it doesn't go very far but yeah. um but and then you know, the other thing they do, which is clever, is they have the fake out of almost killing him in the middle. 
Oh, yeah. You know, or yeah, we're yeah, tricking yeah. you. Or they they don't quite, because I thought, I'm too clever for Joss. I thought, he's not really dead. You know, like, <laughs> I know it. I know he's going to wake up. And sure enough, yeah. you know, his his eyes open. And, you know, apparently he can, like, break and unbreak his own neck yeah. and stuff. Although, um, I have to... So, I, you kind I want of to pause feel like right there because th- this is actually one thing that really annoys me about this episode. You know, you get that, yeah. you get that fake out, and you know, you get Doyle. Oh well, you know, I'm much stronger in my demon form. But then later, Angel breaks the neck of the lead demon in like the same exact way, and we're supposed to believe that he's dead. You know, it's like what? Come on. Anyway, sorry. That's just my yeah. own little pet peeve. Yeah. We'll move on. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Is it the same type of demon though? No, but it's still, there's, like, the... an implication that just demons in general are stronger. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. like would that... Yeah. I guess I read that as a specific ability that he has as his And And maybe but that's a good that way. That was my kind of rationalization. Yeah, maybe that's a good way to get around it, but I... The scourge. I just feel like in the in, in the context of the episode, it, it sort of always throws yeah, me off. Yeah, like, when, when you've seen it. that, like, yeah. ten minutes before. Anyway. Yeah. I could see that. Um, but there's something about like narrative cliches and especially when you get someone like Joss, who's smart enough to like manipulate you. There's something I think, which is usually a bad idea to feel like if a character almost dies and then doesn't, that he's safe. Like (laughs) it's some sort of like bubble, like, oh, we already had the Doyle fake Mm -hmm. out. So we're not going to go there Mm -hmm. again. You know, like. You know, oh, he survived. He's mm-hmm. fine. You know, so now we don't have to really worry about yeah. Doyle. So, you know, I mean, I didn't think of it quite that explicitly or, like, consciously. But I think, like, after... That's what kind of gets you hook, line, and sinker. Is because halfway through, you have the moment where you think Doyle might die. And we avert it. So, um, yeah. So it wasn't really... Wasn't really expecting... You know, and if I thought the hero was going to be anything, I think I would have attributed it more to this relationship with Cordy of finally he's going to go from being like the weasel in the first part of the episode to being to somehow saving her, which we kind of get a preview of, you know, in in other episodes. But yeah. Yeah. And her acknowledgement Mm -hmm. of his heroism. Um which again does happen. Um, but I was expecting it to be just that and not really that they would go all the way um, and kill him off. And there's some other little bits of, um, irony in that little speech that he has with, or conversation that he has with angel about, uh, you had the one thing that you wanted and you gave it back. Um, and it's like, he has Cordy there yeah. at the end. You know, he has the one thing he wants. He, like, she's even, like, she's into him. She's saying the demon thing isn't that big it's a deal. It's way down on the list and of reasons why I it's reject way, you. Yeah, like, your your shortness is way more of a turnoff than the demonness. And And then she even goes so far as to say, you know, are you going right. to ask me right. out finally? So he knows she's going to say yes. So... And they never you even know, get that he, far. Yeah. No, no, of course. He gets, every time he tries to tell her anything, he gets interrupted. Um, yeah, he gets interrupted trying to tell her the truth, and then he gets interrupted 
trying to finally like ask her out in the end. So, um, you know, there's that irony of that he has the one thing that he wants and mm-hmm. he gives it back. Um, you know, he doesn't choose the pleasure right. of the flesh. Right. He chooses duty right. and honor. And, um, and <laughs> right. And he, t- if, if someone, if they're going to bring a fight, can't someone else fight it? Like, you know, like if, if they're going to yeah, come yeah. kill us, can't we just, I'll just stand in the back. I'll be right behind you every step of the way. <laughs> like literally yeah. behind you. Um, well, and it's, it's interesting because it, the, the, the title hero obviously does refer to him in the end, but like the big fake out the whole time is that it's not a fake out, but the the mislead is that you think it's referring to right. Angel, you know, or, I mean, even if you suspect that Doyle's going to be the hero and save the day, you know, the whole story up to the point is kind of all the characters are focused mm-hmm. on Angel. You know, that, like, Doyle just thinks he's this, like, superhuman, mm-hmm. you know, person who can, like, deny himself anything. Like, how is that even possible yeah. that you can be that self-sacrificial like that's not even in the realm of possibility from what he thinks um you know and you have the demon family and their whole promised one right you know prophecies which most of them believe is angel doyle believes is angel even angel probably believes it's angel even even (laughs) like even though doyle like is like denying, like, I don't really know anything about your mythologies. Yeah, it's like he's convincing like, the kid, you know, Reef, yeah. that that yeah. Angel is the real deal. And, you know, and, and then convincing yeah. Angel yeah. that he's the real deal. And, you know, like, yeah, you're probably right. Like, Angel, Angel probably is as sort of, uh, you know, modest as he tries to pretend to be. <laughs> like, you kind of get the feeling that, like, deep down inside, it's like, yeah, if there's a prophecy about there being a promised one and I'm saving them, it's probably about me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. especially given that he's yeah. already visited the or- oracles and he knows he's like, you know, fighting for the good side, you know, like he's literally just made that decision to do so. So it's like, you know, yeah. there is sort of all these yeah. arrows pointing at him. Um, yeah, it's not like egomaniacal or anything it's like that seems like the logical choice that's been his role up to this point has been to be the warrior and the Mm self-sacrificial you know hero who you know saves people you know and doyle is totally um subordinate to that like it doesn't really even like he's not the Mm -hmm. fighter he never wants to fight he rather somebody else fight or if it has to be them he kind of is happy to let angel yeah he'll take the lead right he'll he'll stand in back and you know be a quartermaster or something yeah, yeah he'll do it he'll do it if right. he has to right. basically so um you know that's an interesting kind of mislead too because you have so much discussion early on being about like like almost like what an anti-hero mm-hmm. he is he doesn't he doesn't want it. He doesn't want to sacrifice himself or put himself yeah. out there. But it's be it, I think in the end, it's because, ironically, because of his belief in Angel's heroism 
that he does what he does. Like, the way I read it, and you can tell me whether you agree with this or not, is, like, yes, it's a kind of noble thing. Somebody has to do this. You know, somebody's gonna have to do this and die or else everybody dies. So it's, like, just a practical sure. thing. But, you know, that that Angel's going to do it and that Doyle deliberately makes that takes that decision away from him and protects Angel. I get the sense that Doyle's... I don't think that's Doyle saying, you know, I'm heroic or I'm the promised one. I think that's him realizing that Angel has some sort of greater purpose that they've kind of had a sense of. And if he dies now, he's not going to get to fulfill right. it. So it's this kind of... His heroism is putting his own heroism second to Angel's in a way. Like, I'm going to take this one for the team because you've got more to do and I believe in you. You know, and I think that's him meaning all the stuff he says about Angel's the real deal in the hero department. Because um, I don't know that he'd do what he does if he didn't totally believe that because he's not looking to martyr himself. You know, like... It doesn't seem like his character yeah. wants to, you know, he might be self-destructive, but I don't think he's like suicidal. Right. You know? Right. It seems like he would only really do that if he felt genuinely convinced that he had to do this for this greater mm-hmm. good. So. Um, no, I. It's an interesting thing to kind of have that like, okay, who is the hero and who's subordinating themselves to who and serving who in that moment. Right. It's interesting. I definitely think that that's right. Like I, I, I get that same feeling as well, that it's especially based on the conversation that he and Angel have earlier where Angel tells him, you know, I saw the oracles. I chose to come back. You know, they, they said I was released from my duty and, and I, you know, gave up everything I wanted and chose to come back. Like, I definitely get that same sense that it's like Doyle is thinking, okay, you just came back in order to fight more and now you're already going to, you know, sacrifice yourself. Like, Mm. not that it wouldn't be worth it, you know, but it's, you know, what, for a half dozen half demons, you know, like, that's not worthy of your sacrifice that's worthy of my sacrifice kind of thing like you know like that that it's yeah you know that you yeah like you said like you still have more to do and so because you don't seem to be able to see that i'm going to punch you out and go do it myself um i definitely yeah i've i've definitely gotten that feeling um in that same part um so i i would without you know knowing what the thought is behind all that. Cause we never really get, I mean, Doyle mm-hmm. dies and we don't get sort of a full explanation of why he did it, but I, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty quick decision. Yeah. Like it, we don't even really get any real like explanation from him of what, why he's doing no. what he's doing. You just sort of very, and obviously there's no way now you know. to ever get that. So it's no. just, yeah, no. he does it. And, so yeah, I mean, we can't know for sure his entire thought process, but I I definitely get that same feeling that you do that it's you know that there's a a connection there between 
the the larger heroism, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Although, you know, again, it's like, well, which is larger? Is it, you know, Angel because right. he goes on to do other things, or is it Doyle who allows him to be able to do that? You know, so right. you know, in the long, it's and and especially because it's you know it's Doyle who shuns that sort of active role yeah uh you know all along yeah. like he's happy to be the messenger he he doesn't want to be the hero and so does that make his heroism even greater than angels in a way um yeah 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 and and even though he's sort of um you get the impression that he's sort of obliged to be working for the powers that be in the same way that angel is that yeah. maybe he's called to a purpose. It's not quite the same. He's not this like chosen leader of right. men necessarily. You feel like there's less he's, pressure on Doyle to do the heroic yeah. thing. He's called you to know? get these really painful like headaches anyway. every now and then and and then yeah. tell you yeah. know, Angel what they like, say. It's not necessarily his duty per se to sacrifice himself for, you know. Um other than that, that's maybe just the duty of, you know, people. Or, like, in some larger sense. But, like, you don't get the same sense that he's meant to be this heroic warrior. You know, so you do feel like the moment when he does take that role is more of a sacrifice. Because it's something he's not really prepared for in the same yeah. way. He's not walking around thinking of himself like angel you know yeah. uh as as a promised one yeah. or as a warrior or um anything. although at the same time it's it's definitely because of his contact with angel and that you know that he learns yeah that he can be that so i think there's there's definitely yeah. that um growth there too that we're meant to see um so we get to, yeah well definitely i mean if you think of him in in the beginning how far he's come you know much as he talks a lot about how he doesn't really want to fight and doesn't want to do the right thing. I think clearly, like, you know, from the first episode where it started, where you, Angel had to, like, twist his arm to get any right. help And he even started driving away right in the car, and then he's like, oh, yeah. I, I'll yeah. go back. Like, I guess yeah, I have to go um, back, yeah. Right, to now where he's yeah, jumping is... in and throwing punches and all of that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, come a huge long way, um, so. So we do get, in the final moments, we get the, the goodbye and the, you know, we'll never know if this is a face you could learn to love, and you get the kiss, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, he, and he, he does his thing. Um, but we do at least get the kiss, mm -hmm. so there's, there is that, right? So, we do. Anyway. Yeah. Poor Cordy. Yeah. Well, well, poor I mean, Doyle too. Yeah. Poor, bo poor both of them. <laughs> poor yeah. everybody. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's a sad, sad ending there. Um, yeah, and it's. I think surprising too because you're not used to lead characters getting killed, and especially when there's so few of them. Like this isn't a huge ensemble, you know. It's yeah. only the three. Yeah, even compared to Buffy, so like, it's kind of there's fewer yeah, right. like main characters. So yeah, like if if. Angel leaves Buffy or if Oz leaves or whatever, you still have all the others. You know, whereas here, you're taking away a third of your 
main mm. cast. You know, it's kind of interesting to see, all right, what's a Angel-Cordy dynamic yeah, like? Yeah, without Doyle, yeah. Without Doyle. You know, where do they go yeah. from there? We may see that very soon. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I hope yeah. so. <laughs> like in the next episode. Well, after <laughs> after we he watch dies, Buffy, and then but, he's yeah. never mentioned again. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. And and so yeah, that's an interesting thing because yeah, like okay, obviously Doyle dies, um, and obviously Glenn Quinn dies, um, and so yeah. you know he's not brought back to the show. But it would be silly to think that it's the last impact Doyle's character will have on the show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's still resonance yeah. of just his having been around. So how that affects things too, you know, and, and when and how that'll come up, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see. Um, yeah. I like that. I mean, obviously I like the, bringing it back around to the video with the commercial, but I like that um, there's no conversation. Like, I like the way they stage that, where it's just them watching mm. it and not saying anything. And, it like, he is this ghostly presence there with them. Yeah. You know, like, he's still kind of there. Sure. Um, You know, on screen, but not with them anymore. Mm -hmm. Um. And I just like that they cut straight to that. And, you know, I guess next episode we'll see more, and probably for a while, we'll see more, like, fallout from it in terms of how their characters handle it. But they don't really go into that. In the moment, it's just sort of this quiet, you know, remembrance. Mm. So. Yeah. So, um, all right. So we talked a lot about Doyle. Any Anything about Cordy you want to talk about besides the fact that you know the, the, <laughs> that she actually sort of prompts Doyle to kiss her or you know to ask her out or whatever but um, yeah I mean I think as far as character growth um, it it's nice that she does accept him you know and I like that she's even a little bit offended that anyone would have ever thought otherwise which is like you know yeah what do you think I am shallow a little bit <laughs> a little bit exasperating and endearing at the same time. Why, why yeah, yes, like, I do think you're shallow. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly what I thought. Um, you know, and then she talks about how she thinks he's too short and he's too poor mm. and all this. Um, you know, but but at the same time, as she's being kind of shallow, she, you know it's not really about that. She's actually telling him this is not a big deal. Um, so... That's definitely not a totally new color for Cordy, but I think part of her character development too, that she's becoming more and more comfortable mm. with this world. You know, gone are the days where Cordy would have nothing to do with, like even when she first found out about, you know, all this supernatural stuff and she sort of scoffed at it and was above yeah. it. Um, that's not really the case anymore. Um, you know, and she kind of points out, like, I might work for a vampire, so I'm not totally averse to the idea of demons and everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's nice to see her accept him and give him that kind of, you know, 
validation at the end and it's sad that it didn't work out yeah I don't know that I have. I liked the beginning of her narration over the fake commercial. Oh, yeah. You know, and you kind of get her Hollywood idea of what heroism is, you know, um, casting herself as <laughs> You're right. the young, beautiful, up and coming <laughs> actress. And, um, right, right. Yeah, no. You know, and we get the, well, when we get the continuing saga of their money mm. troubles and all her different schemes to make them money. So they. You're right. Angel should have gone back and played the lottery, but since he didn't do that, they have to advertise. Right. And um, I like that moment of whoever you saw in the vision. Did it look like they could afford right. to pay? Yeah. Um, and when when they want to when they want to uh, just use the trade in their favor to get the demons off in the boat, she wants to negotiate fifty percent back. Yeah. You know that. We should really be getting some of right, the money right. back. You know, we can't give it all away. Right. So, and she, um, <laughs> and she even, you know, you drive a hard bargain. Like she accepts the demand yeah. for, for 60% off the debt, knowing right, that right. like if Angel ever found out, it would, you know. Right. It, knowing that it, it really, really was supposed to be a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, no, those yeah. are all fun little moments. Um, yeah. And of course, I mean, we can have fun at sort of her exclaiming, what do you think I am shallow and, and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I do think there that we definitely have seen a growth here and even sort of like. Yes, she's hesitant to help the half demon, half human hybrid, you know, people, but she does like she still does help them. And like once she's helping them, she actually seems legitimately concerned and you know, about yeah. sort of their plight. So I, I definitely think we can see there's growth there. Like, it's not just that. And it's because of Doyle. Like, it's because she learned to trust Doyle first and then sort of found out that he was half demon. Like, it's, you know, yeah. I, it's easy to just sort of dismiss that as a funny moment. But I think I think there is something that we can see here that actually the helping out of people despite all of her complaints about money and, you know, she just needs a job and this and that, like that there actually is some good going on here for her and, and that it's working yeah. to give her a bit more empathy. Um, yeah. And I think like even the resistance she does have is more about ignorance than any sort of like real prejudice. Like it's not so much, it, it's just that she doesn't realize at first that, like nobody's necessarily explained to her that oh well these are half demons and they're not all necessarily like she's just assuming these are the bad mm -hmm. guys aren't we supposed to fight the bad guys it's a kind of an innocent mistake it's not i don't i didn't read it as her being necessarily yeah. like m you know mean or hateful or anything you know it was sort of and like you said once she kind of gets on board she's on board and there's no more problems. So, you yeah. know, she's just not quite as worldly and experienced, yeah. I think, in all this stuff as Doyle and sure. Angel are. Um, all that said, I don't find the demons in this all very compelling. <laughs> I mean, no. so, okay, you know, you have these half-human, half-demon people who 
clearly are taking sort of the the slot of the Jews in Nazi Germany, and you have the scourge who are the purebred demons, you yeah. know, who are sort of the Aryan Nazi uh, soldiers and that kind of thing, and and all of this stuff. Um, and that uh, yeah, and you even get like their their suits or their oh, yeah. uniforms and their mannerisms and totally. Yeah. Yeah, and giving speeches to each right. other, and the way that the demons hide under the floorboards and stuff. Yeah. It's, like, very World um, War Two, And know? other sort of more vague, general race-type, uh, you, you know, expressions. Like, um, when Reef says to Doyle, you're passing, you know, that's sort of a very, like, right. uh, you know, more of a U.S. slave type of thing, where, you know, you would have... Um, African-Americans who were very light-skinned, who could, quote, pass as, yeah. you know, white people and that kind of thing. And, and um, oh, there was another one that was that I just thought of, but I can't remember what it was. But, you know, sort of little vague hints like that, that, I mean, or maybe not so vague hints of, you know, sort of what's going on there. But, um, you know, I don't, I, I guess from a, like, a, you know, like, it's a pretty straightforward, like, I don't even know that it even gets, like, metaphorical, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just kind of pretty straightforward, like, you know, we're seeing, and and we've talked about this a little bit before, where I think, you know, we've talked about there are demons or whatever out there who are not necessarily the level yeah. of evil of, you know, what one might normally think of as being demon, that they're really more just sort of races uh you know that some are more or less and we even saw that in like the bachelor party and you know talked a little bit you know back and forth about you know can demons be integrated into society and that kind of thing and you know maybe more or less right. to a certain extent but like that like these demons actually seem like not even like the ones in the bachelor party where it was like oh you know we do but we still have some old customs that we you know want to keep like killing the ex-husband kind of thing but um you know here it's we just want to live and be normal people and no one will let us so yeah. you know um i think we're getting you know some more hints of that type of thing um that certainly i think was not the case in sort of the first season or two of buffy like i think this is where mm -hmm. i don't I don't know. It might be a little retconning. It might be just a little more like, let's take a broader look at this world that I've created from Joss Whedon's perspective. You know, like, so right. um, I also like in this uh, episode sort of the treatment of religion um, that that I think in Buffy is a little harsher. Um in this episode, you know, we get we get sort of the, you know, Doyle talking about, oh, you know, I don't know anything, you know, here and there. And, and I think, or is it Angel who says, you know, I don't know anything about your mythologies or whatever. But, um, you know, just sort of the idea that in the end, you know, it's Doyle telling Reef, like, you need to have faith in something. Like, they're, you know, even if it's not like... Uh, you may not believe in prophecies and mystical whatever, which is kind of a funny thing to say to a demon in a fantasy show. But uh, you know what I mean? Like there's, you know, okay, fine. You don't believe in something, but you know, you may not believe these prophecies, but you should believe in 
the person, you know, in Angel, like that there's that there's mm-hmm. something good in him. And and I don't know if that makes him, you know, the fulfillment of a prophecy or whatever. But I know that he will fight for you and that he'll do this and that, um, which seems a much more yeah. positive approach to the idea of like faith and all of that than um say you know reminder religion freaky you know like that kind of thing you know that you get from buffy right right. um and i do find it in her because i and whedon is an avowed atheist um but i do Mm -hmm. i do think that in angel or at least starting here you know, it's honestly something I never really looked at from Buffy's perspective, but I do think that with Angel, definitely, you get maybe a more nuanced uh, exploration of those types of themes and stuff. So maybe we can just keep an eye out and, and look at some of that. Um, yeah. So anyway. Uh, yeah. Let me think. I don't really have a lot more to say. I mean, I think we sort of front ended a lot of it with Doyle and Glenn, uh, you know, stuff i think you know i mean angel is angel he's there's not really a lot uh character wise that we i think we need to say about him um he still broods he still fights he you know (laughs) does all that um so yeah so now so now we do have this sort of hole that needs to be filled and i guess we'll find out if and when and how that may happen but uh mm. at this point it's it's just Angel and Cordy and and you know the other oh the other thing I wanted to mention is too is you know Doyle was getting the visions the migraines and stuff mm. so so right. now there's not just the whole of a person but there's a whole of how do they continue right. finding a role to be filled uh, yeah you know things or clients or whatever, you know, like the people that they need to help. Like there's that question as well that may or may not need to be answered. So one more thing, I just noticed this in my notes. One more thing I wanted to mention about Angel um, is the part continuing from last time, wanting to like punch him through the screen for his taking decisions away from Buffy. When he's telling Doyle about the missing day, he says, we realized it couldn't be. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the world fighting. And then he says, okay, so I went to the Oracle. And it's like, again, we didn't realize anything, Angel. You know, you realized and you made that decision. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I just thought that language was worth noting since we kind of talked last time about how it was a little bit frustrating how he kind of refuses to include Buffy in that conversation. So, um, thought that was worth bringing up. Very, very cool. All right. Well, I guess that's it for now. We've gone over time significantly. So, um, but all good stuff and we'll be back very, very shortly with some more good episodes. At least I know, I know a good episode of Buffy's coming up. Uh, yeah, and I'm quite fond of the Doctor Who one as well. Oh, right, so the Christmas I'm episode. I'm really excited yes, about okay. the... The Christmas episode is great, and I'm really excited to watch the next Buffy episode. Right. So well... Yeah. We'll see them next week. <laughs> see you then. Mm-hmm.